I'm Dan Gilroy. I'm the writer-director of Nightcrawler, and I'm sitting here with my two brothers who will introduce themselves. Tony Gilroy. And John Gilroy. And just for the record, Tony was the producer on the film, and John Gilroy was the editor of the film. And uh, there's a number of key people who should be here who are instrumental in getting the film made, but they chose employment over doing the DVD commentary. So we're going to alternate between diminishing their work and taking credit for it throughout the film. And we're not going to tell you when we're doing which one of those. But as the film starts, and shortly Lou is going to begin his journey, uh, as a screenwriter, I will probably start by telling you what the journey of the film was. Uh, the genesis of the film began when I became interested in a crime photographer from the 1930s named Ouija. That was his, 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 his moniker. And he was, uh, he was the first person to put a police scanner in a, in a car and drive around to crime scenes and sold these photographs to the tabloids in New York in the 1930s. And I thought it was a very interesting intersection between commerce and crime. Uh, before I could do anything with it, Joe Pesci made a film called uh, The Public Eye. And I shortly after that moved to Los Angeles. And a number of years ago, I uncovered or, or, or found or learned about the, I guess what you would call the modern equivalent, which are these people called nightcrawlers. They're, they call themselves stringers more than nightcrawlers. But, uh, but what you see in the, about you're about to see in the film or what you've already seen in the film is accurate. At 10 o'clock at night, seven days a week, 365 days a year, they get into cars, roughly two dozen of them, and they, and they travel around the 800 square miles of Los Angeles at extraordinarily high speed and uh, listening to police scanners and uh, trying to film lurid graphic images and selling it to the news. And uh, I wrote the script. I can get into a little bit more about the process of that. And when I wrote the script, I knew I wanted to direct it uh, for reasons that we'll discuss. And I'll now throw it over to Tony because I sent the script to Tony and uh, I knew I was going to need his help, uh, one, to, to help guide me as a director and also to help me get it off the ground as a producer. You know, when a, uh, the, the script came in, and, and, and Danny heard me say this the other day, I, I thought he was sending it to me just for a read, and I read it overnight, and I, it really confused me because I thought I was, didn't want to come back and make a movie right away, but the script was so absolutely compelling that I had to make it. Had to direct <laughs> it. Had to direct it. Right. I was going to worried about waking my wife up in the morning and telling her that I promised I wasn't going to go back to work, and the movie was in L.A., and I got on the phone with Danny, and I said, look, this is just spectacular. And he said, well, you know, I want to direct it. And I go, absolutely. <laughs> Here we go. Because actually, Here I did not go. know that until you told that story before. Right. So we just, uh, you know, I, I, Jen Fox, uh, who's a producing partner of mine, she produced Michael Clayton for me and Duplicity and Bourne. She, uh, I sent it to her immediately. And she, look, th this script um, uh, had the effect every single person who read it wanted to warm their hands on it in some way. There's there's nobody who read it and said, I don't want to be involved. Everybody wanted to be involved. It, it's, it's, it's so simple and clear and singular and fresh. So, and it's such a movie. So we, um, we knew that the path to making it would be to find the actor. And through the actor and the script, we would have a movie. Yeah, and, and for me, having Tony be the first person to sign on board, it's it, when you're trying to be when you're a first time when you want to direct and it's your first time, it, it, it's it's getting people lined up who have confidence in you and and were willing to go to bat for you. And so, having Tony sign on so quickly uh, gave this gave the project tremendous momentum. And, and bringing Jen Fox on suddenly, what I was doing is I was I was indirectly recreating a team. Uh, that Tony had used was the, the the initial elements were starting to fall into place that Tony had used on his three films on on Michael Clayton on 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 Duplicity and on Born. Uh, 
other elements started to come on board. And, and one of the key elements uh, that then came into place was John, my brother, uh, who's here, who's the editor of the film, because I knew from having watched the process that Tony and John went through and just uh, talking to Johnny on an almost daily basis and, and, and understanding what a key role he played in the films that he's worked on and how addicted usually the directors get when they work with him and come crawling over glass, pleading with him to come back and do their films, that I knew I wanted Johnny to work on the film. It was a, schedule, a question of scheduling. And so Johnny, I mean, look, Johnny had other offers, and, and suddenly he just, he, there he was. Yeah, it worked out really well. It worked out. It was some, there was one other movie I was supposed to do, then that, that kind of fell through, and I really wanted to do a Danny's movie. What I was really amazed by on Danny's movie was how quickly, I don't think I've ever seen, echoing what Tony said before, I've never seen a script like that got so fast-tracked, you know, not a studio movie, but just so fast-tracked from its inception, and then once it was sort of sprung on the world, you know, attracted a great actor and, and great talent, and it was like, it was like in, in pre-production very, very quickly. I was, I was, it was, it was amazing. It, like, it's like a movie that had to get made. Uh, we didn't need John Gilroy to get the movie made. No, oh, it was very we, needed, we needed the actor. Yeah, we need the actor. But if John I needed Gilroy, Johnny, we needed him for comfort. But yeah, right no, now, right oh, this now, is, we're at this the is beginning where the of the older brother thing. Film. Okay, we're at the beginning so here, of the film. We need the actor. So here now, we're looking at Lou, and uh, Jake was right at the top of the list of people I wanted to have play this part. And when we initially started to put the elements together, Jake wasn't available. He was circling another project. And that project fell through, and uh, Jake read it and responded to it. So I flew to Atlanta. Uh, he was doing Prisoners. And uh, we sat down to dinner, and the first thing he asked me was, uh, how do you see the film? And I said, I wrote it, and I see it as a success story. And Jake burst out laughing and said, that's exactly the way he saw it. And, and it, was, it was a door opening, because Jake and I were on the same page, and I think most people who came on were on the same page with that concept, because when you approach the character and the story as a success story, what you're really saying is that you're eliminating any of the classic moral labels that you're going to put on a character like this, these reductive labels that, that either guide you to what you're supposed to be thinking or limit the exploration of an inner landscape for the character. And one of the things that, that Jake took great pains to do and invested an enormous amount of energy in is, is creating an inner landscape for the character based on more human motives that one might not usually associate with, with, with that sociopath, psychopath label that, that would be so easily applied. Jake was always interested in the loneliness of the character and the desire to want to get a job. And we can talk a little bit more like about that, but, but at the same time, one of the great attributes of Jake for wanting to cast him in the film, when I look at him up here now, is there's there's a there's a quality, there's no, several key qualities to Lou. One is that he's he has elite, he has enough charisma and you can engenders enough empathy that in the tightrope the character's walking, he doesn't fall into that pit of, oh, this is a movie about a sociopath or a psychopath. So Jake's face is extraordinarily expressive to me. And I can talk about the weight loss as we're getting into it, because there'll be a lot of time. But he's also, he's smart enough, you know, he, he's, he's as smart an actor yeah. as is an instinctive, instinctive an actor. So he was smart enough to realize that that was a, a real yeah. liability. And the other thing is, yeah. all, both he and Riz, Renee's character, we'll talk about Renee, but Renee's character gets some backstory. Riz and, 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 and Lou, uh, Riz and Jake have yeah. absolutely nothing. I and mean, it's no. just, I've never done anything. I mean, I've written, I don't know how many scripts, and you've written some. I've never been involved in anything where the character came from nowhere. Right. And it puts a burden on the, um, 
It puts a burden on the actor to feel comfortable with that, but then also you need a kind of actor, and both Riz and Jake manage just through their natural humanity and naturalness to sort of give you the echo all the way back through their past without ever knowing what it is. Right. And it's not... Puts a burden on the present. It's like what they're doing moment yeah, to moment. Yeah, but there are some actors that just they're just opaque enough or they're, they're not interesting enough or they're working too hard or something where you feel that time begins now. You know, there's no prior life. Both these guys just came with... No, it's a, such a good point. And, you know, I, it's a function of Jake's intelligence, and it's also a function of Jake's talent. I, the, the level of immersion that he went into this character, and it's, it's a good time now to talk about that face right there. That's Jake Gyllenhaal having lost 28 pounds off his normal frame. And uh, and he did that. It, it wasn't just because he wanted to change himself physically. I think the the, the inception of the idea was that he saw, him, he saw the character as a coyote. So there was a symbolic equivalent to what he was doing. And but, a controversial choice at the time, because we were not yeah. into it. Yeah, there was people. I mean, you should talk about that. I mean, yeah, it was a political football. I mean, but, but you know, I, I had just seen Jake in prisoners and I discussed what Jake had done in prisoners and Jake if uh, if you've seen prisoners you know the character that Jake created and I know from the sources that he was the creator of, the, of a lot of the character he's got Cyrillic tattoos on his on his wrist and on his neck he's buttons this top button he's got shaved hair on the sides and he has an eye tick and and in discussing that I I Jake said that there was a great political battle on prisoners about the eye tick, and it's terrifying when you're a filmmaker to suddenly have your lead character say he's going to transform himself that way. But but I loved what Jake had done, and Jake has tremendous trust in the script, did not change a word of the script. So I, I wanted to reciprocate and have tremendous trust in his process. And when he decided that he wanted to lose the weight, we didn't discuss how much, but when it started to become apparent how much weight he was losing, and we started doing screen tests, it was a Jake that nobody had ever seen before. And 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 the angularity of the face and the grimness of the face at times and just the way it looked, it, it was scary. So before we started filming, uh, there was there was uh, there was. It made his reach for humanity that much dip more difficult. Well, it didn't. It, it it seemed like it might it might have, but it, it actually might have, no. But it made it made it made it more because we always pictured it as being the most neutral, the most right. normal, the right. most the most presentationally vanilla that you could possibly get. Right. And here he was digging himself already a deeper hole. So he, it's very risky to producers and do, you're making the film, we don't have very much right. money, don't have much, very much time, and we have an actor who really feels committed to this idea that's gonna work out in the end. But at that moment, it's very... Well, that's, that's really the interesting thing. The, the, the movie is such a great blueprint and everybody got attracted to the script. But really, I'd say, like finding that character that really did happen in the very beginning days of shooting. I mean, certainly in the rehearsals, but in the beginning days of shooting. And there was, and he was going through a spectrum of, of performances and things. And really, it was interesting to watch because that was really the missing piece of this whole big puzzle. And it, and what he brought and the character they made was huge. Now, Johnny's on another political football is about to drop on the screen. Jake is about to do something. His top knot. He the the man bun. <laughs> and uh, oddly enough, there was a lot of paparazzi there that day. This was like our fourth day of shooting. Jake puts his hair up. His photographs started getting taken. The next day, uh, it appeared in People. And uh, quickly, there was actually polls. Do you like Jake's man bun? It turned out that most Americans did not like the man bun. So in addition to having some, some <laughs> negative response within my own team about the look, it was it was seemed like there was a consensus globally that people didn't like it. I loved it. I thought it was such a great move. And you know, look, if you look on his wrist, well, he's wearing the man bun right now, but when he's not wearing the man bun, he has a scrunchie on his right wrist or the little sort of rubber band that you use to put your hair up. So when he did it, this day continues through a number of scenes. So once you commit to this, not only are you committing to- Oh yeah, once we shot day, this scene, we were in. And then, and then also it became, you couldn't just reference it once because it seemed to be some sort of like, 
a habit that he did. So he needed to do it again so it didn't stand out. So you'll see quite a few scenes. And, and there were oftentimes, there were people who right through as we finished shooting who didn't like the bun. And we would show up on the set and it's like, dear God, is this like from a continuity stage, is this a bun day or not? I love the bun. I thought it was a really cool I quickly made George. friends with, it, it, it didn't bother, it was just like another, it was like coloring in the character. It's like, oh, okay, I didn't know you were going to do that, but now you're doing that. And I'm, here's I'm the third one, the sunglasses. This comes back to my overwhelming singular theory, which is probably the, the most important thing I can say on, on this commentary, which is every single movie I've ever been on, as it's just about to shoot, the most important thing on every film is not the script, it's not the cast, it's not the locations, it is hair. Hair dominates every single show it, at the last minute in a way that is so It shouldn't warping. be so, but it's, and it's everybody true. everybody who's listening to this who ever made a movie is going, you know, every... I, Show me a movie that didn't. I like to do a movie where nothing but ball, just nothing but. That Breaking was, Bad. I watched Breaking Bad and they go, nobody's got any hair. You go, thank God. Well, that was a discussion. Yeah. That wasn't planned. Just what happened right there, that was not planned. When he comes up to the curb and that guy jumps back, Jake had come in a little hot. And so it turns out he gets a laugh. But anyway, I'm just looking at that as it goes on. So, yeah, so Jake is creating a character with these little choices and, and filling in the blanks. And I was just in love with what he was doing as we started to see it on on the screen and started to develop. Uh, it makes makes perfect sense now when you watch it, but there's a bravery to what Jake is yep. doing here and a fearlessness that to me defines his entire process. I think the only thing Jake is afraid of is mediocrity, of not trying, of not pushing himself. And it's an extraordinarily quality to have as an artist and he has it to the nth degree. So, so, um, so you also have, just I'll say very quickly, you have a director and an actor bi binding themselves together in the middle of a very, very rapid show. This movie's gonna be made in 28 nights um, and nights are warping and disturbing, but you're going to have a director and an actor who are pretty much putting themselves, tying themselves together in, a, in, as, in as tight a unit as I've ever seen and binding yourselves together against some controversial choices yes. along the way and some things that not everybody agrees in, but they're so committed and they're so unified in their process that you finally just have to go, okay, this is what we're doing. It seems to be working. It's it's not how we did the last one. It's not how we'll do the next one. It's made, they may never do this again, but they were so united. And, and that's, that yeah, needs to no, be Yeah, no, Tony's bringing a good point. I mean, honestly, if you pull the curtain back, there was, there was a lot of political consternation on a lot of fronts. And I think there were times that people, as the assembly was being made and dailies were coming in, people were calling up Johnny to say, well, so what's what's the cutting room think of what's going on? And you were a big ally. You oh were yeah, a big, you were a big ally for me. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm. I'm. I'm in a position where I'm actually putting things together, and I can see how they look. You know, in in somewhat of a final form or, or close to it. And and you were making your days every yeah. day. You were making your days. Stuff. I mean, you were get. You were making gold. And I was like. And I was like, look, keep making gold. I mean, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm raise my hand when you don't. But. Uh, no, and I don't want to make it sound. But no. once they're once they're cast together, once you've established stuff, you're in it, and and you're you know the production team's job is to protect the director and just just create the the safest environment possible. But it's it's this is a really this is a real writer director actor uh, collaboration at the at the very white hot center of this film. Yeah, Jake and I are are we're creatively in tune. We're still totally. I, mean, I I feel like I feel like there's a creative wavelength that we're on that that. Uh, that, that I, I very much respond to. I know he does, and it really goes to the process, and, and the process that I'm a gambler and I like to take chances. So Jake is actually, I could always consider myself a pretty ballsy gambler. He's a much bigger gambler than me, and, and he takes risks that I wouldn't even take, and I just really responded to that in him. And so, uh, so yeah, the two of us at times were, were sometimes standing alone, but, but it was, we, nobody could confront the, the, the power nexus of Jake and I once we were out. No, allied. and it's also a value. You, the, yeah. you, it's also, if you're, even if there's things that you disagree with and you're the producer, you're standing back and going, I am so happy 
that these two guys are bound up together because they're making the movie. Right. And, if, and in some ways, right. not in, a, not in a, a, a manipulative way, you're sort of standing back, oh, look at the byproduct of this, is these two guys are absolutely unified in a way that so many movies yearn to have. How many movies work where the director and the star don't get along at oh all? Oh, my right. God, yeah. So right. this is, you're sort it's of going, murder. wow, let's, let's enjoy what we have. Anyway. So, so going back to, like, Johnny's, people calling Johnny and saying, what do you like and what's going on? Uh, part of the process as it translated on a nightly basis, because if Tony said 27, 28 days, of which probably 20 nights, 20 yeah. nights, 22 nights in a row. So on those nights that were working, uh, uh, the process for us was 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 one of many takes. And when I say many takes, it wasn't like, oh, we weren't getting it right or getting it wrong. It was always trying. So I don't know what the average take count was, but it was it was probably higher than your average take count because we were always looking for a completely different way of trying something. So if, if is that Rene Russo? That is Renee Russo oh right God. there. She just made her appearance, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about her. Renee is my wife, and uh, I wrote the part for her. And uh, the, you know, sidetrack from Jake for a minute. The reason I wrote the part for Renee is because this character could easily be reduced to some sort of like, like hard-nosed corporate bitch. And 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 while she certainly embodies some of those qualities, Renee has the ability to transmit like a vulnerability, and. I did look at the character a little bit in that reductive way, and I actually thought that that ultimately she became a victim at Jake's hands, but Renee, through a lot of work on her own, came up with another take for it, which was a vulnerability that sort of allowed herself to be manipulated, but at the end, you weren't sure. But going back to those numerous takes and the things we did, so Johnny was getting every day in this bin a, a variation of, I mean, what, what, how would you describe what you were looking at? There was a there was a, a spectrum of a range of performance that you guys were hugging for a while. Um, I think as it got late later in the shoot, I think I think that spectrum it, it, it closed, and I think because we were finding the movie more as we went along. But I think it was really um, uh, it was interesting. It was like I mean I think we quickly could see what would, what the right thing to do was. I mean we've quickly saw the right line once you got it all but you when you're on the when you're out there in the field and you're doing what you're doing and Jake's and Jake is really, you know, it's coming from within him. He's got a you know, sometimes he would it would take him it would take a really big performance to get a really to get a to get to get something that was maybe more in the middle right. and maybe so there, more right. So there he's smiling right there, which is interesting. And Johnny and I almost invariably wound up take winding up with takes that 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 either if we had a take with a smile we often would go with the take with the smile, often, not all the time, but it was it was the grim face takes. Not that there was a lot of them, but the but the darker, more stone face takes uh, were not the takes that we often tended well, to. Well, he's a he's a sociopath, so so we don't. But you didn't want him to paint him at you know as you wanted. We wanted him to be. You wanted we wanted people to understand him as much as possible, and it was about getting him to be. Not just likable, but accessible in a way. And I think I think we were looking for, for you know always trying to walk that line. And we did it with we did it with his performance later on with James. We can talk about that later with the music and the and the line that we took with the music was very much went counter to the to the to the darker um, the darker elements of the movie in some way, sort of counterpointed. You know. Yeah, no, it's important to talk about James's score because I, I think it's such an instrumental key part of the film, and it's, I thought it was so wonderfully executed. Which was which was it's uh, he's he's. He's going like Johnny said. He's going counterpoint to 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 the to the you know quote unquote vile reprehensible things that the character is doing, and in many ways we're celebrating what he's doing, again as a as as a way of of keeping that moral label off the character 
And uh, the first time we've already passed the scene, but the first time James really executes that is when he goes to the pawn shop. He's just stolen a bicycle, and you would think there'd be some sort of like moral score that underlined it. Instead, the score that James comes up with is a sort of like busy little bee who's wandering around. It's almost like a, like 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 bug them or like Bugs Life or something. Like here's this here's this industrious little insect who's moving around trying to like get get off the ground. Exactly. And I think it screws with people's heads. It's it's I think it's. The, I, I like to think that the score by the end has completely gotten into people's heads and messed with their heads in the sense that they don't understand why they don't judge the character when I think the music has an enormous part and a component to what's going on. Um, this was shot in the KTLA newsroom. We only had it for one day, and they were going to kick us out if a big story broke. So this entire scene was, was filmed within a matter of like four hours, uh, and that's the actual KTLA. We changed it to KWLA. Um, that's the top of Mount Wilson. Uh, yeah, there's the Mount Wilson Towers. You know, we drove up there a couple times to get the shots. Um, we should talk about Robert Ellsworth. You know, I mean, we just sort of uh, Tony. So Tony, you yeah. worked with him three times. I mean, I knew him so, sort of socially. But. Yeah, I mean, uh, Robert uh, has become not only just a compatriot and a super soul brother and everything else, but I mean, just a. Um, I was saying to Danny when we were talking about what we were going to talk about today. I said, you know, as we talk about production, you talk about trying to make a movie like this on 28 nights and. And, 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 and working nights is, is just so utterly warping um, and with no money. I mean, this is a movie that should have, could have very easily, should have, should have cost twice what we spent on. It's very, very low budget movie. And so you, uh, you don't just want your movie to look good. You, you, need, to, you need to have a battle plan that um, has every single possible efficiency built into it. And if you're making a film where the efficiency is going to be about the, the star schedule or you're making a movie where the efficiency is about the location or something, but this is a movie where the only thing was make every night, yeah. pray to God, make it. It was. And Robert Ellswood is not just, you know, Caravaggio uh, and all the rest of it. He is literally one of the best production people I've ever encountered in my life. And he can sit down with the board with every first AD. And he he came on this film enthusiastically, artistically. He was Jake Gyllenhaal's godfather. There was yep. a mutual other connection. Uh, they have a long uh, relationship. And his contribution, I think, to this film is, is half, you're seeing half of it on the screen. I agree with you. The other half totally. of it That's is- That's a good point. That's the other really half point. of his- his contribution to this film is the sheer day-to-day -day infrastructure mechanics of pre-production of beating the shit out of Danny every day and yeah. saying, we got to look at cars, we got to look at cars, we got a shot list, we got to do this, building efficiencies into every day of the yeah. schedule, riding herd on the variety of first ADs that we had on the production team because yeah. we couldn't afford a great production team, um, and then staffing us up with the most extraordinary yeah. bunch of people who we lucked into getting because we were shooting in LA from October to Christmas and yep. people could stay home for Christmas before they went off on Mission Impossible or Bond or wherever the hell else we were going. And so Robert's, I mean, they look at Robert's, this is, you know, you see yeah. Robert's work on the screen is what I want to say. And you really are we only built seeing- We that set, that's you're, inside of a studio. So just yeah. the natural light is amazing. You're seeing a fraction of his work. His, his work extends into every, every other part of the film. That's a very good point. Yeah, you know, uh, so you show up on the set at night, and 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 whereas Robert never approached it as a job, I always felt so protected by Robert. The nights, the night, we had eighty locations in this film, and 
And before you start the film, you do location scout. And everybody loads onto buses and they drive around. It took two days for us to do our location scout. And by the second day, I wound up sitting in my Do you want to tell that story, what that guy said? Yeah, I sat in my front seat and then people are piling on. And some people weren't aware that I was listening. A guy walks by and said, one of the crew, the veteran, said opposite the word impossible in the dictionary should be the word nightcrawler. And then I heard somebody else say, they're just going to have to rip 15 pages out of the script by then because they're never going to have time to shoot it. So so I blithely, again, I said, I said I'm a gambler. I blithely went in uh, liking the challenge of it. But Robert was there every night and, and greatly assisting and making sure that we made our nights. And and the nights we made, there was rare, there was no nights that it didn't. we didn't finish shooting within minutes of when the sun was coming up or sometimes trying to cheat the sun coming up. These were full nights, often with double moves. So you'd start shooting you know, by nine, shoot a number of pages, 120 people would get into a quarter mile long caravan, drive six miles, you'd shoot another two or three pages, and then at three o'clock in the morning you had to move again to try to make the next location. So, so. It's one of the reasons why the movie feels so big, I think it's because it has so many locations. Yeah, I mean, there's a scope to it that, uh, so I mean, <clears throat> we could talk about Robert a a a forever on this movie because his contribution runs so deep. I'll say one last thing, he's shooting Alexa, He's shooting, he's shooting digital. Alexa, digital night, but this is film. film. This is film, film here today. Days, no, yeah. film in the day stuff and Alexa at night. Alexa at night. And yeah. he's shooting in his hometown. And, you know, he shot the films for Paul Anderson here, but he's, he, you know, he's, he wants to, he still doesn't feel he's, he wants to shoot in L.A. He wanted another bite at the apple of shooting in L.A. Yeah, you know, and he's, uh, he's just got a, a, a steady, incredibly calming influence on, on, on the people around him. At least he certainly did for me. So another actor just popped up, Riz Ahmed. Uh, so let's talk about Riz here for a minute, which is rather astonishing. I'll start by saying that when you watch the film, you may believe that he's some Generation Y guy who just walked out of a bus stop on Ventura Boulevard. And it's really important to know that Riz Ahmed has a very strong, noticeable British accent and a double major from Oxford in economics and philosophy. He's also uh, a celebrated MC in London and probably one of the coolest guys I've ever met. And here now we're presenting him as this guy who lives in a garage and sleeps on a sofa. And he's utterly believable in it. He inhabits the character. And, uh, and he beat out probably 75 other people. I mean, this was, this was the one Johnny and Tony and I were all, there's a, there's a, just an internet service that escapes my name. But you can look at not only dailies, you can look at auditions. So it's a crucial character. So we started auditioning people on just the first dozen, second dozen. So right? yeah, you're watching at home all the time. People, you're watching yeah. people's tapes just constantly. And nobody got, we didn't get excited about anybody. Nobody. And all of a sudden, Riz sends in a tape. He's, he did a movie called Four Lions. He's, no, he's, he's done movies before. He did Four Lions. He did uh, The Reluctant, Reluctant Fundamental. Fundamentalist. Yeah. Uh, and he sent in a tape, and within literally a minute, it was like, oh, my God, I'm on the phone with Tony and Johnny going, like, this is the guy, Riz Ahmed. Um, we were kind of alone in that, though. There was another character, there was another actor, who I won't say, who was drifting close yeah. to... Uh, and, you know, some actually rather large names came in an audition for the part, and Jake had a very good point, is that... You can't know this You guy. can't have a star play the character. No. Because the quality is... Absolutely. And that, that's, not saying, that's not saying Riz is not a star, nor could he be a star, but he's not a star at this moment in his life. And uh, Well, not here. Not here, but yeah. he's certainly yeah, not a star. Um, but also the tendency for the people that were coming in and, and, and because it was present on the page and it was really, it's the kind of part that it really, a lot of really, really good young actors put themselves on and it kind of stoner, loose, you know, flotsam and jetsam, drifting around the world, no, 
Somehow what Riz came in with was something that felt substantial and completely, it's so sad. His performance is sad from the <laughs> very beginning. For this moment. Yeah. This was, a, this was a, something we That was a controversial in. shot. That was a controversial shot. That, that came in, it got out. It How shouldn't many times be. did you cut that in and out? It a few be. times, yeah, we ended up, yeah, it was, it's fun. It's, it's uh, a fun shot, you know, it's funny. It's, uh, it, I like it when I see it now in the screenings. I'm glad it's in the movie. I would miss yeah. it if it wasn't there. So, uh, But just Riz, there's just so much heart so much yeah. natural yeah anyway. he's got a big spirit there's the bun so again that was his part of the day so he's got to put the hair up in the bun um so you know here's we got our first sort of high cars cars so so anything with cars there's a person involved in this that's really important to talk about a guy named mike smith who's our second unit director and mike smith uh assembled just as Robert Ellswood assembled arguably some of the finest camera people on the planet mike smith on on these nights we had some of the, we had like like a top NASCAR driver, the Swedish ice driver champion of the world. Uh, it just, it was insane the people that he developed um, and and put together. So so Mike Smith, you know, put together this amazing team and here's our first little taste of, of driving. But as the film goes on, and you've probably already seen it, we can get more detail about the, uh, the chase and stuff, but uh, instrumental in, in what's going on, you know, in terms of this. So. So actually, in this scene, you're going to see two guys walk out of the uh, fire. Howard Reichbrook was our Nightcrawler uh, technical advisor. He's part of Reichbrook Media Group that he runs with his two brothers. And you're going to see two guys come in out of the left. I'm just going to point them out. Those are actual Nightcrawlers. The only actual Nightcrawlers in the film are about to walk by with cameras. And here they come. There's one, one and two. Those are the Reichbrook brothers. And they're going to run off to their car. And, uh, and, and, and they actually spend their nights, seven nights a week, going off and driving that. One of the brothers has a very bizarre specialty in the nightcrawling world. He, he's made a lot of money shooting wild bears. And, uh, and he shoots all the bear video really? of, yeah, he shoots the, like when the bears come out of the, the uh, Los Angeles National Forest and wander around in some poor homeowner's What's pool. his secret to this? I think he puts steak out. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the... I think that could be... In we fact, don't know that we don't for know. a fact. No, I don't think he puts steak out. No, I'm Although sure. Although one of them shared, I don't know, one of the brothers shared with me that they knew somebody, quote-unquote, who when there was an earthquake would quickly grab a camera and then make their chandelier swing and then film it. And that would be the first shot that usually... A competitor, uh, someone that they didn't like. Right. Yeah, and as that. another example, one of the things they tell you when I cross, these guys, and rain is such a rare event in Los Angeles that when rain is coming, they will go out to the mountains and try to get the first shot of rain hitting like a freeway. That's worth $1,000. Just flat out rain flat is out worth rain. a grand. The first yeah. shot of the rain, $500,000, the first shot of the rain. So this is how they make their living. They make their living off events. That, okay, another high-speed driving shot. Um, uh, we closed down, this is one of the nights we closed down Laurel Canyon Boulevard out in the valley. Um, now, you know, there's a, a few scenes that got cut out of the film. We've sort of gone over them. That was, there was a scene right now I'll just, yes, what do you, what's your memory of the scenes that we cut out? We, um, so the taco stand. The taco stand. Well, anything that we cut out was, was eventually recycled. I, I think yeah. every, almost everything we cut out was recycled later on for the, for the montage, which does happen sometimes. You sort of, anything that was Well, there like was left, an early scene that was really my favorite scene in the script. Yeah, that got cut out. It, yeah. Uh, there was a, there's an early scene very right at the top. He goes to the salvage yard. Yeah. He steals, he steals the watch. He goes to the salvage yard and he's feeling good. And he goes out on a, on a tin, he's in his car and he does like a tinder snapchat yeah, thing sexting. and he sexes with this woman and he meets a nurse in a diner that's a big scene and it it's just uh it was it was really kathleen york did a phenomenal job yeah, everything about it was great it, it it's really it when i read the script it was to me it was one of the most important scenes of the whole movie it's so sad 
And it, it was one little tiny glimpse into, into what conceivably be a backstory for him, but not really. It doesn't say very much, but you have to really work hard. Yeah. It was it, just a beautiful, harsh, harsh, mean scene. And um, from a pacing standpoint, it just it just slowed things down a little bit. It and, really, honestly, it did. No, and and right? it, yeah. li- it lived in the movie for as long as, as a scene like that can. Could. Yeah, and then it was a li- one of the last things we excised. And you it, told me you spent more time cutting that scene than any scene you've ever worked on. Uh, yeah, I did. I did. I'm, I'm, yeah, I was trying to say, trying to. It's a byproduct of knowing something's wrong. Yeah, it's, it's like well, it's like yeah, it wasn't quite right for the movie. It, it was really good, but like, could it be shorter? Could it, could it could it be like this? Could it be like that? I mean, and then you always really know because we've had this experience many times before. If a scene will come out of the movie effortlessly, it's sort of like a tooth that's just ready to be pulled. If it comes out of the movie and seven minutes later you go get a cup of coffee and come back and you're going, and you you, you feel two things. You feel like, I can't believe we just did that because I don't need that scene. And then you also feel this very, very weird, huge energy rush. Yeah. You go, wow, I didn't, Wow, my you, have to be honest, like, you have to be honest yeah, you with go, yourself. Wow, yeah. I, it feels so good to get rid of something. This has happened yeah. to Tony and you I before. You feel terrible. Yeah. Then someone has to Michael call this Clinton. out. Michael Clinton. Michael Clinton had the identical yeah. circumstance. Jennifer Ely and George Clooney shot a scene that was exquisite. Right. And we hung on to it. It's a very parallel situation. And when we got rid of it, it went. It was like it was never there. I know. And you have to call, the, you have to, you have to call actress up, actor up, and say... You're going to have to believe me. I'm not cutting the scene because of the performance. Right. I'm, and I'm not cutting it because someone else is telling me to do it. I'm cutting it because my movie works better and I have to do it. It's true. Yeah. It's very, very hard. Very hard, but but we got through it. And uh, Kathleen was very understanding. Um, no crying in baseball. <laughs> so this is Kevin Rom. Kevin Rom is a wonderful actor. I became aware of him on Mad Men. Uh, I think he's got just just a great vibe and, and a great talent. And, you know, he has the uh, unenviable job in this movie to sort of be the Jiminy Cricket who's <laughs> trying to, like, stop he's things from happening. He's the conscience, yeah. And, uh, and he, just, uh, he just brings an integrity. I thought he really brought an integrity to this to this sweater vest-wearing guy who was trying to keep the Edward R. Murrow spirit alive and, and was doomed. There was no hope for him. Um, We're not in Hartford anymore. We're not in Hartford. He's so from Hartford, too. Yeah. I like how you <laughs> We're running it. So there, you know, there's a, there's there's an example where you know Renee's coming across as this hard-nosed. Uh, so at this point in the, in the film, you know, the character of Nina is is very much in control, and uh, sort of a mentor to this character. It's all about to shift. So these scenes here, this was shot at an abandoned, uh, not abandoned anymore. It's actually owned. Uh, it, it's owned by the by by the Scientology uh, Center, and they uh, they film a lot of their stuff there. But they allowed us access to these beautiful old sound stages. These are sound stages. This is one of the oldest sound stages in in Los Angeles. It goes back to like 1919. You're kidding? No, no, it does. And those ropes, those are the original ropes to control the uh, the flies and the ceiling scaffolding, and they allowed us to build uh, build our, our our faux set here. Uh, you know, one thing about this scene. This is this is one well the sixes but also the James's score. This is one of the things where the seductive sort yeah. of like like uh, a hopeful seductive score is he's telling her his dream. It's like and it and it pulls you in. It's almost like yeah. there's a little there's a little visual punchline. Well, this at is the a end. Horatio Alger score. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is that if you're gonna go, for, you, you you you're going for the success story. I'll, I'll say something that I did. I, it, I'm not patting myself on the back, but, but in the sense that Jake actually has been referencing this in some of the interviews, that we tried this a number of different ways, and I finally went up to Jake and I said, Jake, do it as if you're asking her to marry you, and he stepped back and he got he goes and he, he got very emotional. And you, and you can tell he deeply. And when he turns in a, in a second, he's almost crying. He actually was almost near tears. Which, which uh, he, Jake is so facile and quick 
uh, for instruction. He he under it was a good note to give him because that's a very good note though. And and he's just and I said you're in love with her. Actually, I what I said is you're you're up on top of a hill overlooking a river and you just ask her to marry you. You're in love with her. You're 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 just and here it is. Here's that's it. a really good note. And then this is the punchline. Yes, it does. Now, you know, it works really well now to do the reveal. I got to be honest, I don't, I don't either stupidity or ignorance. I actually imagined that we were going to be using that this angle throughout this scene. Right. But somehow in talking to you, it suddenly became, that was the visual tag. Yeah, when you put it together, you're like, like wait, wait, hold it's your fire, hold your fire. It's hard to get any emotion fire. from that angle. I know, but I was actually thinking with the day we but shot it, it I but it's such a, it's so, it's so absurd when he, like, with the, to yeah, see what he's... Yeah, but you wouldn't get any personality from that. You, would, you, would, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't get into it the same way. Now, here's one of the, I, what I believe to be one of the greatest shots in the film, and I can take no credit for it. Robert spotted this monitor. Robert spotted the shot. And actually, he loved it so much. We we went back a second day to get the shot. There's we no had, CG. This is all. This yeah, is just yeah. done practically. Yeah. Robert. It was Robert who picked up on this. I think it's probably the only thing that Robert really came up on his own. Everything else <laughs> I came up with on my own. But I do want to point out that Robert did have some some, yeah, Robert. some input on yeah. what was going he on. He was around. He was around. Uh, so look, there's the plant. We should talk about the plant for a minute. So what the plant was is I was very concerned in writing the script that this character was going to be so uh, reviled that you that wouldn't be able to engender any empathy for him. And so I, I flirted with the idea, actually I wrote a little few scenes where he had a dog. And I thought having a dog would give him some sort of like uh, connection oh to humanity. God. But the dog got in the way, so the dog became the plant. You you drove me crazy with the plant. Because, yeah, no because one, yeah, I have to this, say, this is a singular, Dan Gilroy's well, relationship. It. The plant doesn't care. mean anything. I don't, anything mind, about I don't mind the plant. I, I don't mind the plant, but you but you had the, an idea of the plant being like sort of grizzled at the beginning. And then The plant was supposed to be gnarly and, and brown yeah. at the beginning. That's the kind of thing. How many times have you seen directors focus on some random thing that no one else cares about that sustains them all the way through the whole show and at the end it's meaningless I've, I have seen it a couple times no, so let's but, chalk that up yeah. to that that's no what it came can. down to. No and this, this is the this is the montage where everything that was cut out of the movie oh nearly everything yeah that was the, the scene Catherine that got Yerson. cut uh, that, was this a, is, that was a big scene these that are all cut. this is everything ended up in the montage which happens sometimes this uh, was the last scene we put together this. yeah that was a scene then that was a scene in the movie so this is our montage, and I, I wish I had the lyrics to Team, Team America, America right now. Yeah. You know? Uh, That's right. That's one of the shots back there. But here he is. And so, yeah, now it's a couple months later. I'm not going to start to talk like because there's other things to talk about. So let's uh, talk about L.A. for a minute. You know, it was like... Uh, Are we, uh, we have a natural break? No, this is our natural, uh, uh. This is our natural little squeegee shot. I always get fooled. Um... So, you know, we're in L.A. We didn't talk about it too much, but but one of the things that Robert and I wanted to do is show L.A. in a way that traditionally maybe you don't see it. L.A. is often portrayed in a desaturated light, a place of cement and freeways and downtown. We didn't shoot anything in downtown by design. Robert and I were very interested in, in trying to capture some sort of sense of a wild, untamed spirit of L.A. and uh, and actually trying to make L.A. physically beautiful as much as possible. So so we were always looking for places that had you know, like uh, bright slashes of light, uh, what it translated into specifically was was avoiding soft focus as much as possible and get, allowing things to sort of uh, to, 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 to focus off into the background so you could see far um, wide angle lenses and uh, and uh, and it's something that we tried to carry through as much as possible in the film. So it's like this next shot is uh, is a is a shot of sunset at night. And again, I just think it's beautiful. Look how far you can see. And it's if I live in Los Angeles and I just I'm always impressed by the physical beauty of the place. I mean, I say we're not we're not. A fortuitous billboard too, off that, off focus. that last scene. Focus, I know, right? Focus. So we're actually demanding right now at that moment the the audience to focus, um, and uh, 
Here's a scene that got trimmed. This was interesting. This actually had Lou responds when he when when Rick asked him a question. Lou actually responded with a longer moment, but it didn't. It somehow it didn't work. And I love the way he's. He didn't, the way he pronounced it is wrong. It's actually Bed Bath & Beyond, but he didn't, he didn't know. He's from England. He didn't know Bed Bath & Beyond. So he pronounced it Bed Bath then? <laughs> Beyond. And, and it was the first time he did it, and he was like, I pronounced that right? And somebody corrected him, and every take after that, he did it the right way, and it wasn't nearly as good. Yeah, right. but that actually puts him outside. I mean, he's, yeah, it puts him outside. It puts him exactly. outside of the whole... Um... Mike Smith shot right there. Uh, middle of the night. Look at this, no traffic. See, that's a great thing, man. We're working at night and we got this insane schedule and no money, but one of the great things about working at night is there is no traffic. So you can go anywhere you want at a relatively like, decent time. Um, I, I, great actor, uh, Jamie. Uh, there's a piece of paper next to me. Jamie, I'm sorry. You did a great hell of a job. And Jake, Jake, Jake loved working with you that night. This is shot above Griffith Park. Um, this was uh, this was right above the observatory. They it's a, it's sort of an abandoned, deserted road, and you know, uh, just the amount of work that goes into something like this. I think I think Robert and I and Kevin Cavanaugh, who I want to talk about. Kevin Cavanaugh is our production designer, who was not only instrumental in doing production design, but was also instrumental in uh, Jamie McShane. Jamie McShane. There you go, Jamie. See, he came back, but 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 he production design also involved in the locations, and so so you know. This is in a location that, that Kevin Cavanaugh was in many ways responsible for finding. This uh, overlook uh, of, uh, of, the, of the valley. See the lights in the background now. You can start to see LA drifting really far, which is, which is everything that we wanted in these shots. If we, were, if we were up, we wanted to be able to see far. And, you know, we visited this, this location probably five times to do the staging of the cars and to get these angles right. Uh, uh, Andrew, our, uh, Andrew, our Andy, Rollins. Andy Rollins, did the steady cam. This is, this was an amazing thing that Andy Rollins did right here. Um, it's it, now why, watch how Andy's going to push in. I didn't direct him to do this. He just sensed there was a moment. He's going in completely on his own. He's going really close, and he's just there. He's Andy. Andy just sensed that something really powerful was going on, and Andy's steady cam work and the whole movie to me is just a revelation and it's it's such a big part and after Andy did it I went up and I hugged him I said I said I just, what you did was just so beautiful there such a key he's part he's been of the doing scene. that for everybody for a very long time yeah. yeah he's been he's been uh he's been hugged by a lot of directors another big moment for James here this is a big iconic sort of <laughs> as you as you go along everyone this is like sort of his uh, the, the the second transgression of Jake's uh of, of Lou's you know in the in the in the story and and this this you mean his next step? His next step, active, and, yeah, his yeah, next active step. Incremental. And and James's score is, is sort of underlying. An absolute that. celebration. Yeah. And that electric guitar you hear, there was a lot of conversation where we would do it. Like, I think a lot of times your instinct is like, what's the instrument that represents the character? And we went back and forth on a lot of stuff, but I think James finally decided, and wisely so, that it was an electric guitar. It was electric because I believe there's an electricity to the character that literally plugs in. And also there was a. Yeah, you had a word. You had a word. You said. You you wanted like a, uh, the word anthem came up one day. Yeah, and but he had an anthem. And 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 I think James really latched on to that. And also the progression that it's da 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 da. What that comes from is we talked to James. I said James. I said one of the key scenes for me. It's funny. I wound up almost getting cut out. Was when he goes into the child's room. There's a little sort of lullaby playing on one of those little right. machines. Right. And I said, is there a lullaby sort of? And so that's James's lullaby. It's almost like a child lullaby. It becomes an anthem. It becomes an anthem. That was James's progression. So you know, just like we're talking about Robert a lot. There's a, is an intricate, detailed thought process that James put into this. The progression of what's going on. And it was really key 
And this is a primer. If you ever want to ask a woman out on a date, you, you start strong-arming her, as, as Jake does. It seems to be effective for him. Um, <laughs> yeah. I like older women. And I don't want to fuck that up. What if I say no, you fuck it up? Is that what you're saying? Here comes the laugh. See, this is one of those takes. He didn't do it every time this way. I didn't say Here. that. Now, there you go. Now, there, we probably have three or four takes where he doesn't laugh. Right. And it just, it just, there's Jake willing to explore and try, and he taps into something that's utterly magical and real for the character. So there's our two anchors. We've seen them before, I think, but that's Rick Chambers and Holly Halula. Uh, both of them are anchors in Los Angeles, and we should talk. I mean, the, every anchor in this movie who is an anchor in Los Angeles. And uh, we I want to talk about Bill Paxton for a minute. Okay, here we go. Here's Big Bill right here, man. Because I want that T-shirt. This is the absolute, this is pure SoCal. This is, yeah. this is like, this is as much LA as anything else as Bill Paxton in this scene to me. He's just like. Well, you know, it's interesting because Bill's from Texas. I know, but there's that. Well, look, the, 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 Los Angeles is the Wild West in a, in a lot of weird ways. We're West and Bill is West. And, uh, and his energy is just great for this character. Uh, aggressive, uh, forward thinking, uh, tough. Uh, conniving in a lot of ways. He's uh, he's he's like he's like the first version of the Terminator, and now Lou is sort of like the the Terminator that turns into like liquid metal and moves around and beats him. <laughs> he doesn't know he's talking to the, the new Terminator yet, but he is. Look at that smile. So this we shot this on Sunset Boulevard at six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Uh, and uh, and there's a couple of shots that I think they were earlier just now where Robert pulled back and we got these beautiful sunrise shots looking down an empty Sunset Boulevard, which I loved. It's really interesting because most of the, the traditional take on shooting in Los Angeles is, you know, a super long lens, traffic masked up, cars packed together, everything moving, freeway cloverleaf. Yeah. And and this movie is has nothing in it. It has no background really. It has very little moving in the background. It doesn't. No. It's a it's a it's a it's yeah. an ecosystem yeah, it's for bolder. these creatures to move around in. And it's it makes it much more effective, I think. Bill's gonna improvise a line here. One of the few improvised lines in the movie. Every call. Coming up, he gets angry. It's something that I may be interested in, but I'm not. The Jake's plane is very calm, which is such a wise choice. Here it comes. Be fucking sucking my dick. You ask me questions. What is this? See, I don't usually use language like that in a film, but but Jane, but Bill's dropping a dick in there. So that was we used it, and it was a good choice on Bill's part. Not fucking interested. Instead, I'm gonna drive home and do. It's great how Jake really underplays this scene. Like like you think because you know you know he's what he's sort of capable of, and then he sort of just really he he sort of backs off. I want to talk about the car, but I don't want to talk about the car yet because we're coming into the Mexican restaurant scene, which is La Cabanita, very important scene. Uh, technically, couple, uh, that, that was a rights issue. That We had to throw that one in because it turned out something else was copyrighted. It's just a, it's a minor point. So here we are. So, here's, so I was scared when I wrote this scene. It's a six-and-a-half-minute scene, and suddenly everything is stopping. We're watching two people in a, in a room. But, but, but... Well, you said something last night that I thought was really interesting. You said you'd rather watch two people tearing each other yeah. apart than anything else. And I it's kind of true. <laughs> you know, if the people who've seen the film so far and responded positively to it, really, this seems to be their favorite scene. Yeah. There's, an, um, there's, there's emotional warfare going on here, and somebody's literally emotionally eviscerated in the course of the scene. And I think that you can compete with any spectacle, no matter how much money you throw at Well, you've at never it. seen this scene before. I've never seen this scene before. And it's a perversion of 40,000 other scenes that we've seen. So you have, every, everyone comes with a huge frame of reference. 
reference, not yeah. not only for having played the scene in their own life many yeah. times, but all the times you've been instructed in movies how you should do it. And this is this is a completely in most movies mirror universe. In most movies, this is a three minute scene, and the fact that it's twice as long, and you watch and you think you think you, you think it's gonna right. you think you know where it's gonna go, and then it's really like a chess game. And he just checkmates, but it, but it's like it, it, it just takes, keeps getting more and more. It takes awful. so many more moves, and you're like, and you're like, oh my god! I mean, there's a couple lines that are just so amazing in this. In this, so Johnny Johnny pulled out some uh, tent music on this, and actually wound up staying. The it's music funny. on this said you do the, the, the two part attempts. Yeah, you we needed, and we wound up using it the entire time. It was one of the few things that didn't change. No, I, it it, uh, it works so well, and uh, it couldn't be topped. Uh, I think Nick 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 Ratner, who we'll talk about later, maybe yeah. he, uh, he he tried, and we uh, now we won't maybe we won't talk about yeah, it. I don't know about that, <laughs> Mr. Ratner. We will talk about it. it, it We're going to talk about it, Nick. Nick. What was this like, Ratner? Yeah. Right? Yes, Ratner. Nick, you can curl up in your apartment and and pet your taxidermy as you listen to us wax. Poetic about your exactly. your involvement in the film. Yes, yes. Stroke, That's all you get. Stroke, stroke That's your, it. Stroke your stuffed penguin. That's it. And we will stroke your ego. I only came out to dinner with you. Um. Oh, yeah. So yeah, we are emotional. Let's mention Wally because this scene got a lot of work. This was Steph, uh, Stephen Sonnenfeld, who colored helped color the movie. Company three. Company three Very doing important. the DI in this movie. And when you're shooting a movie this quickly, and uh, there just isn't. I mean, there isn't time to be Caravaggio. There isn't time to do all the things that we would know. I mean, it was actually really frustrating to sometimes for me to look and go, my God, that you, you, you're, that's all you get? That's all you're going to do? We can't right. shape this? We can't? So you're left with a lot of, uh, there were a lot of bogeys in this scene. There's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, DI work in here yeah. to make Call sure you concentrate on it. And, and, and Stefan, who, um, you know, was doing like, you know, seven hundred billion dollars worth of movies on around us managed to find Including a way to. Transformers. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, though. Literally, yeah. the budgets of the movies all managed to fit us through. And he was another big gun that came on to this. Huge, exactly. That came on to this this you know modest movie yeah. and uh, uh, and, uh, and he really did player it, and gave it the big gave it the big job. Yeah, absolutely. So this is an example of of what you get when Jake loses thirty pounds. So so now he looks different. He slicked his hair back. And he looks, I think he looks very handsome and cool, but, but what's coming through, he's literally starving right now. There wasn't one night or one day he came on the set that he hadn't run or biked and he'd eaten a kale salad and he was literally starving himself. And what comes out to me when I watch this is he just looks hungry. There's, there's beyond hunger. It looks like he's going to eat her or eat her. He eats people's ideas. He just, it just feels like he wants to vacuum everything in around him to sort of fill some enormous, you know, Grand Canyon size hole that can't be filled. And it's 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 unspoken, but it just comes through for me. He seems hungry to me. Yeah. And actually, the, you'll see in a minute that he's actually going to eat something. But he very daintily just picks it with his fingers because he didn't want to eat a lot of food. So he and actually the chicken he eats there, I think, was the first time that he had protein in two months. Oh, God. And he and and he and we had to pull it away from him. He said, "Take this away from me because I have to keep my weight down." <laughs> this line that just happened here, the, the like you want to keep your health insurance. When that comes out, it's just like it's so sort of wildly shocking i think right. to most people it really was to me when i put it together the first time i was like wow that well this really is this is also the real exposure of him whatever you've been tempted to think about him before even when he moves the body you say oh god you know the guy really wants the best shot he really wants to get ahead i know he's a thief but he needs everybody needs to work and he does ask the guy for a job and yeah. he seems everything everything is everything is you can write a permission slip until right. this scene and this yeah. scene, at the end of the scene, you know who he is. You have to say, "Okay, 
<laughs> and then and then he gets a different permission slip because she says okay. That she says okay. No. And they're like, like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, if it's okay with her, right. maybe it's okay with me. See, but he's picking right now the chicken. And he was in love with eating the chicken that night. I love how we just stay on Renee for this whole thing. For this, yeah, for from this. an editing standpoint, that was key to catch that look that she just gave. Because now you can see the vulnerability. Now you can see that what you thought was this hard-nosed and controlled woman actually is extraordinarily vulnerable. Yeah, for a six-minute scene, this went actually went together pretty fast. We 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 had this thing honed pretty yeah. pretty well, we pretty did. quickly because because of their performances were just so yeah. you know easy to sort of zone in on. So how many sizes? How many sizes all the way through? How many cameras were you using? Two or three? Two. Use two one. all the way through, right? Yeah. And then so and so. And then, and then we had two. What we had? We had the, this we had was your most evolved table scene because this was like your last table scene. The, the, the table scene, very, the, yeah. the one with Kathleen York, was, was right. smaller than than the, the one with Riz. The one with Riz, we had no coverage for. That was a little. That was a little tough. But you really went. You, you you knew how important this was, and you really you gave me you gave us good coverage, overs, and everything. And it really was, it was it paid off. Did you shoot? You didn't. You didn't try to do anything else this particular night, right? No. There was no. This was a single. Oh no, no, we actually did this, and actually. There's something called the burn, and the burn is the over that you spend every day. And and we had our biggest burn on this day. We I think we had right. a forty thousand dollar burn because because we went longer because they were doing such good work. So I think we went an extra four hours longer. And the scene that we shot after this was the taco stand scene that we wound up cutting and folding into the uh, into the other shot. Montage. Yeah. This scene is still going on. I'm sick of this scene. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's over now. Wow. There it goes. How fickle. Very so smiling. They're coming off That's a reaction. That's all right. So now we're back to these shots of LA. Look, we're trying to make it look physically beautiful. And uh, and here it is looking physically beautiful. And nobody lives here, that's what I'm saying. It's just completely empty. Uh, well, I take it back. Yeah, there's a few he doesn't people. live here. So I, I wrote this in the script because I find these things to be endemic to Los Angeles and also true. That wacky painting. man is a reshoot. That was a reshoot, but we, we sped him up. We love the wacky man. So it's talking about the car for a minute. So you know, in that time cut, now he has this uh, this this red Challenger, and 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 I think it was, in, it was one of the few things I was trying to get into the psyche of the character. He's there's no backstory, but I think he's very childlike. And I lo I always thought these these uh, these RT Challengers had a sort of a Hot Wheels quality to them. So I thought he was attracted to this car because it, it was almost like a toy. Because logically, you wouldn't really want to get a red car. You might want to blend in more in the night. And Rick later on points out we're in a red we're in a goddamn red car. But but. I picked that car because I just thought it was just so toy-like. I think this thing looks really cool, and it sounds good. Oh, it's, it's great, yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it's, well, it's like a prize. let's talk cars then for a minute. Uh, you know, for anybody who's going to make a movie who, who uh, you know, Danny came in, and, and when we sort of ran, I mean, not to be silly about it, but ran director school yeah. for the seven months before yeah. he started shooting, you know, I think in the very first time you came to the house, cars. I said cars, cars, cars. And you were like... Okay, okay, okay. And that's the cars. same thing when I did Clayton. I remember Robert coming over and saying, you have to do, let's get rid of the car stuff because it's really going to be complicated. I'm going like, how hard can it be to shoot right. in cars? I've been on movies for years. They th they slap some rigs on and they yeah. shoot well, it. Well, yours that's... was the hardest because it was magic. Well, anyway, but magic it's like, hour. I know, but, but, can, but car, and Danny just did not believe me. No. And when we finally, when we finally got down to the last couple weeks of pre-production, and you realized how it's very it's time consuming, very, and you can't reinvent it. Everybody, you think you want to no. reinvent the shots? I want to do something new, and it's impossible to do something. I wanted new. I had shots that I wanted to do, but we didn't have the budget yeah. to do it. It's definitely true. So you wind up doing these tray shots, you know, driver tray, passenger tray, 
obviously the hood shot. I, I at one point I thought maybe we could have a sort of like through the sunroof shot, but we didn't have the time or the energy or the money to do you know, that. You don't really. Those you begin to realize that shots. You don't. You don't need. I mean, you need what you need to tell a story. You don't need. You know. You don't have to. You don't have to reinvent that wheel necessarily. No. Not when you're throwing fire trucks and hoses out and doing seven other setups. And having a million locations. There's that big locations. landscape that we're always trying to get. There's the big deep focus. You know, it's uh, not, not it's not classically deep because it's a little out of focus, but it's just that you can see far. We were always looking for locations. Kevin Cavanaugh found that. It's up by the Simi Rail. Simi Rail Valley, Simi Valley. KTLA Newsroom, one of the few shots we got. So let's talk about the clothes for a minute. So Amy Westcott was, was this extraordinarily talented costumer costume designer we had. So he's wearing the white shirt here. So we actually had we actually had an arc for the character in terms of his clothes. The first time you see him, he's wearing that leather jacket and a salmon-colored shirt. So the white shirt really for us represented the idea that he's now become a professional. So so I don't know if this is registering or not. It also has the added benefit of looking like he's uh, like he's uh, like a Mormon missionary. So he has this sort of, sort of odd myopic sort of like energy to him. But Amy Westcott was very instrumental in in, in crafting what looks like it's a deceptively simple look. And I thought she did a great job with Renee's clothes as a woman who uh, used to be in front of the camera and, and now is uh, sort of hanging on by her fingernails in a, in a managerial position. So I want to mention Amy because uh, her work really stands out throughout. And Johnny, from a production standpoint, so now here we are with all these screens. I mean, these screens were, were very difficult from a cutting standpoint because... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things going on there. We thought we were going to have more playback elements that we would shoot practically, but it turned out to be a bridge too far. So, so, so there were some practical elements, but then a lot of this stuff had to be replaced later on. So that was just another problem. We wouldn't solved. do it the same way again if we were starting over now. I would. Yeah, no, we'd we do more not. homework. We'd do yeah. more homework. We'd have more practical stuff. Actually, when you do it later, you have more control. It but actually, it's expensive. It's expensive, but it but it 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 Here's made a cheat the right movie. Oh, so this is a total cheat. Yeah, this is, uh, we took the plane crash after we did the, well, we should talk about the uh, Jacob. Okay, so yeah, so we're, we were shooting the apartment uh, on a couple days, and a lot of it wasn't scripted, because we just wanted to catch natural reactions of the character moving, or Jake moving through the uh, apartment and, and making his own. And we come into the bathroom, and, uh, and and he slams the medicine cabinet closed. There was no intention to ever break it, but he broke it, and, uh, and two seconds after he walked out of the shot, it was apparent that he'd sliced open a good two inches of his palm, and I took him to the hospital, and he had 40 stitches. He was shooting eight hours later and doing it. And uh, I called up Johnny. And I said, man, what's happened? This footage is not going to work. And within 20 minutes, two hours, Johnny called back. And Yeah, first we put the mirror. First we put Jake in the mirror. That, that worked really well. And then realized that if we took the story, that the story was playing in the background while he was looking in the mirror. There was no home for that at that point. No, it was just no, a no, shot. I, I just, no. I, no, I no, took... No, when he took, shot, when Danny said when he made the shot, there was no home for no. it. No. Didn't sit at this point. No, yeah. So, yeah. So, so we... First, it was it was a, it was the fulcrum of his, of his anger. That's one thing. But then putting yeah. the story in, hearing Ken Shinek talk about the, the story that he didn't get, and then we made up a visual. Um, it just it, it no, felt like it always been there. the murder as, as a motivator of the murder. Absolutely, it, it really. Uh... As a screenwriter, one of the things that our father, who's a great writer, always pounded into my head that I remember is cause and effect, cause and effect, and cause the cause of Nina yelling at him had the effect of him breaking the mirror, and then rigging up Joe's van. But you know, it's funny, in the script, it just goes from Nina yelling to him doing the van. But seeing that other moment- that You would have gotten away with it, but it wouldn't yeah. have been as strong. It really, when I watch the film now, it's an incredible fulcrum. And what you're seeing is Jake starving himself and working a 22 hour day and channeling a lot of energy into something that became a little over aggressive. Great line coming up. My favorite line.
Why can't we be at the Rape in Griffin Park, Park like, like everyone else? else. That's the T-shirt that I want. In a lot of ways, it sums up their world. You know, these <laughs> yeah. guys these guys take human tragedy and 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 discount any human aspect to it. Um, it also is a mark of of how far Riz's character's professionalism has come. Yes. <laughs> Riz is, Riz is finally understanding what needs to be done. He's a little slow on the uptake here. Um, so it is interesting because uh, because Johnny Johnny created the shot, this viewfinder shot, and uh, and we I think we did that as a pickup, but I didn't really understand the full utility of it until you put that in there. Because you connected Riz going by with the actual practical shot. It was just another. Oh, it was also a way to sell the van. We wanted to make sure that people knew that this was Joe Loader's van, and we we ended up having to augment that with also putting a logo on the van. The MV thing, we right. put that in later as, C, as a CG element, just so people would understand that that was the van that he had that he had he had jimmied the the brakes on. He just put on. his hand on Riz's shoulder, and that was just all Jake. You know, it was actually Jake. Jake did that take, and I remember people on the set looking at the monitor, going, "Oh, really?" Is like that's not going to make the movie. And 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 we get in the cutting room, and sure enough, it's that take that becomes the the odd quirk of the character that that moves his story far farther along. Um, Bill Paxton, man just right there this is like two o'clock in the morning it's cold out you can't tell and and he's covered with this uh, fake blood and and uh, just such a trooper uh, that's a deadly look that's one of that's one of blues deadlier looks right yeah there. there's no more permission slips so now here's Mike Smith and we're following in a camera car with an 18-foot boom a guy named Chris Mosley is the second unit cinematographer, an expert. Look at this boom work. I mean, you just look, you know how hard it is to do this? He's coming in a foot away. We got it lucky with the full moon over on the left. Didn't even know that was coming. And now here he is coming like 18 inches off the hood, all in one shot. And but we should also say that this was extremely controversial shot. Yeah, it was. Because it was so not in the vocabulary. It and and it, you start a film and you end up with all these theories yep. about the plant and about the look yep. and all these ideas. And, and some of them are incredibly valuable and, and sustain you yeah. all the way through. And some of them turn out to be absolute horseshit. Yep. And we one could... of the things that we had was this really rigorous dictum about what kind of shots we would have. And that shot is so outside of the vocabulary of what well, we know were going to do. The whole but thing it is, feels good. It feels good because it's along the lines of Danny's Hot Wheels thing. I just realized it's a it's a Hot Wheel shot. It's like it's like it's like you're looking at the shiny car and you're really and you're going around and it doesn't look like it. No, it, but it, it also is that the characters turn to corner, and so the he's changed. So the language of the film changing, and then there's James's score. You know what's funny? What James's score reminds me of? It reminds me of the guy who pounds the kettle drum at the bottom of the galley, like ramming speed. Yeah, it's, it's like just, a taiko like, drum. It's like, like a, it's like this unstoppable. Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Cavanaugh finds this location. Now, when I wrote the script, I didn't write in a long driveway. I thought it was just some house alongside the street. What does this driveway give us? It's unbelievable. It gives this sense of isolation. It gives this suspenseful buildup. And when I, I, you know, there you go. Talk about what you expect to do. When Kevin first showed me this location, I thought, I just, this location doesn't work. It's off the street. The driveway doesn't work. And within five or ten minutes of talking to Robert, and Robert's going, I think you really should reconsider what's going on here. I think this is really a perfect location. <laughs> That's a pretty good Robert. I really think you should. I learned at that point that when Robert starts uh, asking to reconsider things, it's always a good idea. I'm going to take another second look at that. Hmm. So Kevin Cavanaugh just comes through on this location. And, and you know, now here again, we're starting to lean into these viewfinder. I have to say, Robert Ellswood. So now when walking through this location with the camera and what we're about to see, you know, your instinct is, is like, let's just start showing everything in the house with the character in the frame. 
And in talking to Robert, we decided that, you know, with Robert very much involved in the decision of this is let's play as much as possible off Jake and the viewfinder. And then Johnny now starts cutting it. So how did you approach it that way? Well, yeah, that was a, that was a, the rule that, that we, had, we had settled on. So you guys, the way you guys block the scene, you were really, you were almost, you know, showing none of the, the carnage, you know, uh, directly and never using the camera. Until we get to the till we get to the news station, and that was the that, that, and that worked really well. And I mean, the benefit is is that the whole movie is about people who are drawn to lurid graphic <clears throat> images. And here we're not showing, so we're holding back. So basically, we're telling the audience right now is, hey man, if you want to see these lurid graphic images, you're gonna have to really sort of lean in and focus on this little viewfinder. So in a weird way, we're getting the audience to start to, the the ones who are sort of from DNA standpoint hardwired to like these images, which is pretty much most of us. We're asking them to lean in on their up their seats. It's like, okay, there's one. Okay, I really got to look. What is that? What the hell is that? It's like, how bloody is that? But that's all we're going to show you. So we're kind of teasing you there a little bit, but I think it's philosophically in keeping what we're trying to say in the movie. Yeah, so I mean, we walked through this house a bunch of times, and uh, I'll tell you something interesting. The guy, uh, one, of our, one, of our, one of our set dressers and uh, sort of visual effects guys, he's the guy who splashed that blood on the, uh, on the white carpet, and... Uh, because this guy named Darren, I became very close to him. He's actually one of the most the most knowledgeable cinephiles I've ever met in my life. The baby's room. Yeah, which I never. Anyway. Yeah, see, this Tony doesn't scene. like. The, I don't Tony like doesn't like the. It's, it's. I don't like it because there's no baby in the end. Well, I don't right. know what well, happened. We, we, and why would you have the anyway? Oh, you're wrong about that. I know. I know. There was other, <laughs> but I will say, for producers out there, your director has an again. This is another like idea. And the idea is so important to the genesis of the project for the for the for the filmmaker. And you know, I've been in the opposite position. I've had those ideas and hung on to them and had other people staring at me for yeah. months and months going like, and either you, you know, they're, they're, they're important to you, they, they mean something to you. It meant something to him. It completely still defeats me what it is, what the point of it is. but um, it, I think it's a suspense. No, but you have to back in the end. As yeah. long as it's not killing you, you got to yeah. back the director and you got to go, okay. Um. So I learned something the hard way this night. There's a scene where Jake runs up the driveway and he had a tremendous amount of energy and, and we shot him then running down the driveway from the same angle, but we couldn't use it because we needed to have this angle. And for whatever reason, I decided we we're going to shoot this in. This is being shot now at like 6.15 in the morning. We've fucked around the camera to make it look like night. They're delivering newspapers. And Jake is running down that hill many times to try to get that speech out because he's been working 18 hours. And uh, and and I learned that that if your actor is in the moment and doing a speech well, to probably get as much coverage of it as possible and not make him wait 12 hours to continue the scene. So that was a learning curve for me. <laughs> yes. Let's just say yes and move on. That was uh, interesting. <laughs> the cop car really, really, really is too close, but we lost our light. And so that was the only shot we had. I would have, if I'd do that again, I would have had that car yeah. 200 yards down the, down the road because I would have thought maybe the cop car that close would have stopped him and pulled him over. We got lucky here, the fog. The fog rolled in. I always wanted fog in this movie. <clears throat> There's only two scenes where we have fog. There was the scene where he pulls up to the uh, first Nightcrawler thing with Bill Paxton. We got some uh, fog. And then uh, and here on Sunset Boulevard, the fog rolled in. The LA looks great with fog. James's score... 
which is really uh, really adds something to this whole thing. That the it's, it's really magical. Yeah. It's like it's like oh here's this magical moment. Really hard to find the music found, for this. Yeah. Really hard think, to find the vocabulary. I think Nick actually found it. Uh, we you know Nick. Yeah, what, Nick Reiner, man. Probably. I probably think he probably put something. a signpost on this. And well, then, you should talk first. I mean, this this movie uh, very very difficult to find to find the thing. And what we do is well, same thing we've done on every movie is you're just throwing constant stuff again. All the crazy stuff that we tried, all the children's orchestras. Yeah. Remember? I mean, all the, yeah, I mean, those the ideas that crazy, we tried. crazy things. And you're throwing everything you possibly can against it, trying to make it work. Well, Nick, we work with, you know, Nick has been part of the equation with, with on Tony's movies with James and Nick comes in early and, and, you know, we, you always have to put some sort of temporary score for preview purposes, whatever, on a bigger movie. Uh, uh, Nick came in in a similar fashion on Danny's thing and really did lay some serious signposts and was a, a, a musical consigliere all the way through and um, and was and part it, of the equation. it's a job equation. that's built on failure, too. You're yeah, failing. You're, it's 99% failure because you're trying to fail and fail and fail especially as aggressively Nick, as you Especially with Nick, you're saying. Like, yeah, well, that's just... I wouldn't want to say that, but okay, you said Okay, well, that. no. No, but sorry. I mean, you, you, you want to... You, 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 if you're not failing really big, it means you haven't tried everything. There are some gigantic things uh, that, that, were, that came up in the movie that, that, that were found by Nick. Some things coming up at the end I will talk about. Um, uh, really big Carol finds. Carolyn Gilroy. Carolyn Gilroy, my daughter. There she is. I know you. So now we get to see what actually happened in the house full frame. So now, you know, there's a question of repetition. Uh, so now we've seen it this way, and, and the, the from an editing standpoint, I think the challenge was that Johnny and I were talking about was that we know we're going to see it later on in the broadcast. So how much are you going to show here, and how much are you going to show in the broadcast? Because really you're seeing it three times now. You're seeing it once when he goes into the house, we've seen it, or we've, we've pulled back and not shown it because we focused on the viewfinder. Now we're starting to lean into the images a little bit, but we know we're going to see it again, so we're trying to hold back and be careful that we don't re have repetition. The, the Ann Cusack does a wonderful job as the sort of legal uh, uh, legal voice in this in this film. So you have to assume no, and that's just one of the issues. Well, you can't broadcast our identity. I like what Johnny does here from, a, from an editing standpoint. It really plays around the room. You're getting everybody sort of... Pixelate the faces. Getting the different energies that are really sort of uh, competing in what's going on. And I'm Lou. Jesus, is there a dead baby? And now Lou doesn't read anything about what's really going on, just is happy to introduce himself, doesn't understand the, the real conversation. Block the faces, don't give out the exact... Now you can see the monitors in the background, you know, in walking through the location. Kevin Cavanaugh found us a room where you had glassed off looking into the control room, and... Uh, Weird for many of the locations we looked at, and we almost went with a couple of them. There was just a straight wall, and uh, and uh, it just I think gives it a much better effect to have that soft focus. Oh, it's huge! Soft focus it, it looks, in the background. It's, it looks great, and that stuff is that stuff. The background stuff is practical. Uh, I mean, we always had to fight with you couldn't see the images because there was a whole legal thing of what would be on the screen. But but all that soft stuff is is all uh, was all done practically. Wonderful. We should mention uh, Betsy Danbury. Betsy Danbury, because um, uh, I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that uh, this movie exists without her in many ways, and her, yeah. who's I mean, uh, Jen Fox and I are, you know, we get the producer producer credit, but the line day to day, night to night, yeah, every single bit of all this stuff, and trying to trying to do it with a you know trying to do it with no money and it's a thankless job it's a really it's an awful job and mixing and particularly it, it, it's awful enough when you're making a movie with no money and and everybody on the movie uh, is used to making no money when you're making a movie for no money and you have a mix of people who are used to making no money and a bunch of people who are used to making 
you know, Money. triple scale. Yeah, you have a you have a real clash of cultures, and you have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, expectations, and and a lot of people who have to take diminished resources in departments they're not used to, and work hours she took they're not a, used she did a to. Great and job. she had yeah. to be the she had to just stoically and buoyantly night so you after night. Everybody. Yeah, so and no, she just no, 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 no. just just uh, 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 absolutely the. The, the, the most rugged, <laughs> take-a-beating job. Um, and, and she yeah. just smiled all the way through it. Really Amazing. extraordinary person. Here's the longest speech in the film. Here's the, here's the, the one-page monologue. So right now, we're not going to cut away. So Johnny and I decided early on that anytime Jake or Lou had more than five lines, we were going to stay on it. And, and I think what it does is it, it just allows the character to really exhibit the energy that, that's, in it, that's driving him at all times, which is this manic, unstoppable. So here, he's just going to start going. And and this is a testament to Jake. He's amazing. You know? He's amazing in this thing. It's, yeah. uh, and the thing, the thing to always understand about these speeches is that our schedule was changing on an almost daily basis. So Jake could show up one day thinking that he was going to have a light day. It often would be the case where he's, oh, Jake, you're doing that quarter-page monologue or that half-page monologue. So he not only had to have it memorized, he had to have some sense or deep sense of what the choices he was going to be make. So this actually, I think, was not, this might, we might have thrown this at him a day earlier. And he steps up to the plate and does this. You should point out that you, you, you spent a lot of time, um, a, a great deal of time in very intense rehearsals with them, much against, much against all the formula that we had used before, right. and, and really forged your own system with him that came back and paid off all the way through, having yeah. everything. I mean, I'm married to an actor, Renee Russo, right. my, my, my part, my love, and, I, and my partner, and, I, and I, like, I like the process. I give her my scripts, and she gives me ideas for dialogue from an acting standpoint. So I like working with actors. I like actors. I like I like the process of creating with them. And it might go back to like the first films I ever did with my seven-year-old daughter making these little films, and just she was the actor, and I just like creating things like that. So so Jake Jake decided early on that we were you know we wanted to work closely together. I would go up to his house for three months before, and we would we would we would we would rehearse and discuss and eat and talk. So so when Jake shows up on the set and does a monologue like that. It was. I was aware that 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 he had he had invested enough energy and so much energy into it that he was going to be able to try and exhibit, you know, explore as much as he could. Ten seconds, nine. So the guy actually running the board right there is a guy named Manny Luhan. He's actual uh, 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 runs uh, TV uh, control rooms, and he was came on as a technical advisor. But uh, I liked his vibe and his look, and uh, he's I think he's one of the linchpins of the scene in an odd way in terms of keeping the energy moving. So Johnny here, let's talk about this man. You had to compress, you know, the little the literal recitation of Lou going through the house, which we couldn't show, into something that was more manageable and, and efficient. Right. You had the uh, you had your footage of, of Lou that you that you shot that we replicated uh, him going through the house, and then uh, you went through and you you had the newscasters uh, look at the commentary and riff off it. First they did what you had scripted. And then they, and then they're so good. They're sort of like studio musicians. These people, sort of, they can riff on things. So uh, they went through and did two or three takes and just riffed on what they saw. And then what we did was we took a combination, a hybrid of of your written stuff and their stuff, and built a spine for the scene. And then it's just a lot of complicated, um, you know, monitor work and 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 riffing off what you did, what you did in the control room. And it it was really fun to put this together. It was really really. I'm really proud of it. Really came did you, how much of this did you cut? Did you, had he cut a big section of this before you went back and finished the scene? No, this was a, this is something. Or you had everything, assembled. all the pieces. 
and showed to me, and I was really rather staggered from the first time I saw it. But it wasn't like a kind of project where we cut something together and then go back and get the third piece. No, well, the, no, it was what we had to do is we had to cut the spine first. But like that's the one thing. What the spine was, and I played the spine right. for Danny, and Danny thought like I think you were a little underwhelmed because it actually wasn't. It wasn't really the scene yet. It was just like what was going to be on the monitors. Right. Once we had that straight, then we start. Then we're then we're plugging that in here and there, and we making our rules about what's going to be on each monitor and and what they're seeing. And of course, Renee is really great in this scene. Repeat that. Yes, yeah, scary, you know, and very concerning, particularly given what we're looking at here. So you know, the day we were shooting the actual uh, Rick Chambers Holly Halula stuff, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of it was scripted, but but their patter and their banter. Uh, is 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 the accuracy and the truth of what they do on a daily basis, which is which is narrate stories and and speak extemporaneously and 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 uh, with someone screaming in their ear, with someone speaking in their ear at all times, uh, you know, saying things and directing them. It's so disturbing how how just mundane they are in their descriptions. Well, this really I, look. I think this goes. I think this scene is the is 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 not the stepchild, but the the equal the the the, the great co companion of the broadcast news scene. I right. mean, that's the that's what I was thinking about it, when we were putting yeah, together. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 clear that they're 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 uh, they're doing very very different things, but um, yeah, it's uh, oh the nursery again. Yeah, you're just praying that that now, James's score is going to do something very interesting here. It's a turning point. The score is coming up, and it's going to it's going to tonally change, as if you've gone over the top of a hill, and now you're coasting down the other side. I remember James wanted to do something more sinister at the beginning. We were, we were working on this, and we kept on saying, even even in, even the even the A side, to make it a little more, to make it to make it intense, but not to not to lay it on too thick. So we couldn't come out the other side of it. Right, exactly. some sort of assistance, and then came upon what you're looking here. And there's the smile, that we always would look for. There's the third body. There's the third body. It's just great to watch real people do their thing. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You it's know? just I think so great. You could never get actors to do that. No, not ever. They, they're like preachers. They have their own inner belief system and their own way of delivering things that you can't really accurately recreate. So were they wearing their own clothes or were you dressing them? It's just whatever they wore on the what day? What they wore, we encouraged them to bring their own clothes. And that's a tenshire, and that's accurate. So, you know, we're watching something get produced and looking at production. I mean, we haven't really mentioned Bold, who's the financier. No, and we should have in the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, we made it sound so simple. that Jen, Jen Fox and I just read the script, and everybody wanted to do it, and then we were off to the races and making the movie. That's that's, that's just so not... Uh, everybody wanted to do it, but, but the... Um, the practicalities were, you know, how much money can you raise for a movie like this, and 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 who should we have pay for it when we have Jake involved? And the people we got involved with, very fortunately, were a company called Bold, which is uh, uh, Michelle Lidvak and and Gary Walters and and David Lancaster, who was really instrumental. Um, and they were, you know, a, a financing entity um, with a foreign sales typical foreign sales thing but the uh jeff stott uh who was there someone i've known for a very long time and and david lancaster is also a filmmaker really really understood yeah in a fundamental way uh the rationality of what we're doing and the difficulty of it yeah and 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 uh we could go to them as as really honest brokers and between their their production acumen and uh, and gary walter's financial 
quantism. Mm -hmm. uh, we've gambled really, really aggressively for a California lottery position yeah. uh, for a tax break. And it's a little bit complicated to get involved in a DVD commentary here, but it's it, basically a guy pulls bingo balls out of a, out of a, out of a, out of a, out of a cage, and you find out whether your movie's going to get to go or not. Literally, that's how it's done. And we. Uh, it's a little more complicated than that, and it went on for a long time. Uh, sort of had a high lottery number, and we waited until I think the week we started to cash flow this movie, our lottery did not kick know. in, and it was a lot of gambling. So uh, I have to say, hats off to Bold, not just for being cool all the way through, but for really making the the very aggressive play with us in the beginning to to risk it all. Yeah, and uh, Bold is uh, backed by a guy named Michelle Litvak, who's. Uh, who's a financier and, and, and a lover of cinema, obviously, and uh, the other people involved are Gary Michael Walters, uh, who's the president of the company, David Lancaster, uh, who was very instrumental in terms of the company in helping us get this off the ground. And uh, I always felt supported by them, and I always felt they understood what we were trying to do. Yep. And uh, there's a new, another actress come in, Michael Hyatt, who uh, was the, de the lead detective. Who I think has a, a tremendous presence. I always looked at this character as the only, the only real moral voice in the in the film, the only one who was really horrified and had said. Whereas Kevin Ron was horrified, as Frank, what was going on. He's ineffectual and had no ability to change anything. That this is a character who understood something wrong was going on and had the power to change it, but is ultimately going to be outfoxed by uh, by this by this brilliant sociopath who she's dealing with at this point. the shapes of two men moving inside the vehicle. If that helps. And the note for Jake in the scene was that we both agreed on was that he was excited the police were coming to talk to him. That he was he was really excited people were coming to speak to him in his apartment, and he was really glad that people were talking to him about this, rather than in any way shying away from it. Which sort of might explain his exuberant energy in the scene. No, I don't. I only started filming when I was inside. I'd like a copy of that footage. Do I have to give it to you? <laughs> Is there any reason why you wouldn't? Yeah, Kevin, uh, the, the, the scale of this apartment, the color palette of it, I know he and Robert worked pretty closely on, on, on adjusting it as they went along, but it's, um, it, it's, it's perfectly pitched. It's a very difficult thing to do to make his apartment because it's so tempting to go the wrong way and yeah. try to say too much. And it's, yeah. it's almost yeah. like the wardrobe. It's, it's almost like the wardrobe. The, the, it, when you have such a small target to deal with, it gets so much harder than, than somebody who's... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one person we haven't talked about uh, for a lot of these computer graphics is Jazz. Jazz Janini, who is uh, who worked with us on on Born and works on a lot of big movies. And again, another another uh, high level super pro who came in and did a favor yeah, for he us. Yeah, did a favor for us and did a, just a great job. So I yes. just want to mention Jazz. Yeah, Jazz, he's the screen all this, master. All this, the screen master. Chances character. are, if you're seeing a two hundred million dollar movie and there's screens that are appearing all over the place, Jazz has programmed them. And speaking of screens, we should talk about Connor Meacham. Who uh, had a lot to do with uh, our, our visual effects? And, yeah, uh, our, he was our visual effects supervisor, and uh, with uh, Relevant, and they, you know, not just the monitors. A lot of a lot of stuff had to be tweaked with the cars, just all sorts of motion control. A lot of a lot of little. When you have a, a, a small production with a with a tight schedule, you're doing a lot of fixes in post production, and uh, Connor and his team were really instrumental in making all that happen. This was the only scene we went back and shot twice, and the reason we shot it twice is because both Jake and Riz felt that they that they'd learned something the first time they did it and they wanted to go back and shoot it again. And I think it really paid off the second time. Well, you know what we did? We changed the staging a little we bit. Did, it, it was a, you couldn't really use the one night, you couldn't integrate no. fully the one night with the other night. So this was actually the second night. These three, these yeah. three, three quarter things were the second night. And what we did was we ended up 
using them for the beginning of the of the scene and then for the end of the scene right. and the the body of the scene was, the was actually night. the first night which yeah. was which Riz was really amazing in yeah. I thought I'm totally confused now we're into now we're into the second now okay. we're, this is the first night this is the first night stuff but a moment has arrived that could allow the company to make enough money to expand to the next level those, you know, we didn't we didn't block traffic. Those were cars going by. I mean, just as a minor note, it was, we didn't have the money to close down streets, so cars were often just going by. Because the, the the crew was so small at that point that uh, we didn't have the ability to do it. You've been asking a lot about your performance review. Yeah. Well, for starters, I've been seeing a great. There's such a. Uh... I'm trying to identify what makes the Riz character so what, what makes what makes his character so sad, and it's it's you really feel that there was, uh, without a backstory, you feel that there was a real chance. He he's not he's not where he is um, by his own fault. That there really was great opportunity for him somewhere. That that it's just been thwarted by everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. You feel he's really been. Well, they're both hopefully Suppressed. representative of what, of, of what what millions of young people are looking at, which is a bleak job future and 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 and, and little hope of a meaningful long-term career. There's it's hard to find, and and uh, I always thought that that Riz very much embodied the lowest rungs of it. Yeah. As somebody who was trapped by a system, and small amounts meant a lot to him, and really, you know, ultimately just uh, lacking some some affirmation that that he's doing a good job, and here he's getting it. Pick a number. You pick a number. Yeah, pick a number. Now, in terms of, do you want to talk about, uh, because we talked in the beginning about, you know, how when you do a film like this, you can't build any, you, you can't build a, you, you can't build your, your, your schedule around the performance and you can't build right. it around anything else. You're shooting everything out of sequence just because you have to. There's the yeah. only, as I said before, the only efficiency in this movie has to be how can we possibly get out with, with yeah. the film. So... These guys are going back and forth. Is this this is a this is a really, I mean that's a really late scene to ask actors to do early. Were they were you doing stuff like that? Yeah, we did that. Uh, yeah, we there was there was there was nothing even remotely approaching continuity. We didn't shoot anything in any linear way that's right. start to finish. So, so I this came this came sort of more in the middle of the schedule, and uh, and. Uh, but they knew where they were. They knew where they were. Yeah, because you always we'd, know where you are. But we'd rehearsed. I'd rehearsed with both of them for three months before. Uh, one of the only this is an unusual shot, you know. Suddenly, we're we're always Robert and I. We always decided that we we're always going to be low to the ground. There's not one aerial shot, which is un, I think is unusual. For, I don't know if I like that shot though. That was unusual. I don't like it. I like it. Well, I mean, it's so out of the vocabulary. The rest of the movie, it's like it, it calls attention to itself. That I shot think it's I love. A, yeah, but the, the overhead shot I never liked. I don't like, get you it. You wouldn't like that shot if you didn't have the other shot. That's that's true. Maybe it's yeah. true. <laughs> Maybe it's all you had. But we have no we have no plane I'm shot, and no helicopter <laughs> shot in this movie, which I think is very unusual for an LA movie. I was actually really happy that we didn't have any shots like that. This was an early scene. This was might have been the fourth or fifth night. Yeah. And this was the night where this is a big meaty scene. And they did this relatively quickly. Uh, they knocked it out, and we all understood that the preparation that these guys had done it was going to serve us extraordinarily well. It was like, wow! It's. Uh, I think they actually might have gotten applause off of one of the takes uh, because because we were doing these. These were like two or three minute scenes that we were doing in, in, in long takes. But then we'll report his location to the police. He's a violent, wanted criminal. I can't believe he's just going to peacefully surrender.
And how far afield are you going? You're you're all over Los Angeles too. Yeah, so no, you're pretty far out now. This is up in Boyle Heights. Yeah, and uh, this is up in Boyle Heights, and we went. You know, Los Angeles. We there wasn't. We were at the farthest north end of the valley, all the way down to the farthest south end of the, of the basin, uh, below downtown. But never west. No, we did go west. We were in Venice West. Okay. Dine, the diner scene is diners over on Sepulveda. That was west. Uh, one, of the, one of the great geographic devices in this movie, editorially, was their GPS, which that screen used, we used it so often, yeah. like to, to, to sort of orient you right. where you were or where, where, where they were, a location was or they were turning around or... Uh, and then we had to actually go back and do all the names of those screens. I mean, yeah, the was, practical, uh, actual geographic So people places. wouldn't call us on it, yeah. I want more But here again, it's another long scene. I don't know, maybe it's a yeah, the dialogue. the dialogue sounds really good. I have to say, uh, it, it was problematic. It was hard with the cars and the time to, to record the sound, like, really, really well. We had a really great sound team. Um, you know, uh, uh, Scott Gershon uh, came on board. Again, another really heavy hitter um, with very big credits, came on and said he would do the movie. Uh, Margit Pfeiffer, the, the dialogue and ADR supervisor. And um, and we had great mixers, Andy Kayama and Martin Zub. And, and they really, uh, it was such a dream to work with uh, to work with this team. Uh, another, another key set of players uh, in making this thing happen. Well, all right then. Now I can feel good about it, at least. Now I can I'll go the extra mile. You know, that's what you never understood, man. It's been a problem the whole time. You gotta bring yeah, we talked over, but that long take where Jake is doing that long pause, uh, it's very dramatic, and it's, it's extended, and, 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 and you don't know how long he's going to hold it for. Yeah, it goes it on a bit more than you think, yeah. Well, we'll say also, you know, we got down to cutting this movie at the end, and once we sort of got it down to the bone, and once the diner scene and a couple things that were sort of, you know, favorites that people couldn't get rid of finally left, and there was still, you know, an urge like, oh, should, what, what else should we do? And and I remember being on the phone with with. Uh, with with Jen and with Bold and and with you and saying, you know what, there's. In many ways, it's the simplest movie I've ever worked on. There isn't, there isn't anything extra on here. There's no subplot. There's no. No, it's so there's tight. No, no, exactly. There's no. It doesn't have any of the normal, uh, accessorized scenes and moments. Or in, interchangeability. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. Or choices. It just doesn't have. There's nothing. And they go, well, there must be something else you can do to try and do something. We, we, like, we move this thing very quick. We move this thing very quickly. There's nothing else to do, and you find yourself. Yeah, and they go, well, how can fast. you be so sure? And it's sort of, this really is in, 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 and it's not just because there's half a dozen very long scenes and sort of very d clearly delineated chapters. It's just a very, very direct, Yeah. no backstory, Sometimes, just here right now, very simple to understand. Um, Sometimes it takes a while to find the truth of a movie in a cutting room, whatever. I'd have to say that, that the truth to this movie was cleaned uh, Early on, like I know, things I agree. just it just sort of came to the surface very early, and it speaks to a lot of all the preparation and the and the blueprint. I'd have to I'd have to say, this is my one contribution, Danny. Oh, we well, had more than one contribution. This you is talking my, about going into the red car. I was like, yeah. you gotta 
He's got to freak out car. that they're in a red yeah. car. And that's when he says in the next scene. Is that when, did you give him that yeah. laugh? I was like, they're, they're following it. these guys around. I guess should Riz say that you're oh, in good. a red car? Yeah. I like that. We're in a red car. That's how you get a producer's credit. Yeah. That's it. Right there. Did you have more with those guys? Were you worried that those that, about? That's the kind of thing I would freak out all the way through about. Do I recognize these guys from the house? And do I recognize the guys from the thing? And did was that like a big? I can't yeah, well, remember being part of that. Yeah, we dressed because one guy's rather large. But and we bald. never really. The other guy's kind of young and vaguely good looking. And no. we dressed them in a particular way. They drove a black Escalade, which was identifiable. The audience just seemed to understand. That's who the they kind are. of nonsense that drives me crazy. That I realize is unimportant. Yeah. What's that? I would have been really obsessed with like making sure that you saw these guys and that he really saw them and it's definitely the same guy and I don't yeah. Know. yeah well we did it Johnny Johnny focused it's... in when he's editing the footage on the computer screen yeah at but home. it's he says he's the same you know it's... yeah which helps all right I, I'm gonna say I've been on a lot of a lot a lot of location scouts in my life a lot all over the world I happened to be on the location scout the night we went to this next location the Chinatown yeah. Express. I may have seen, I've never seen, it. it is as good as any location I've ever seen. We drove up to it, it was daylight, and as the sun went down, yeah. it's disembodied everything to me that the movie was about. High, it's beautiful, yeah. and Shining it's beautiful, Express. and it's ugly, it's high and low, it was perfectly voyeuristic, it was just, I've never been happier on a, we just sort of stood, remember we stood out there for like, an hour. Nobody wanted to leave just picturing what we could yeah. do at that location. You should talk about the evolution of like because it didn't always start out the way this 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 finale didn't wasn't. Well, it was blocked. a shootout in a diner, but you don't know you're going to get a place like this. It's a fishbowl. Right. And it's yeah, like you bowl. show up and you it. go, oh my god, look what we can do here. I was I got very excited oh. when the daily started coming in, and I realized this would be seen through the camera, which you'd already which we'd already established earlier in the film, even when we started to put it together in piecemeal. And this is something we had to sort of, this took a few nights to get all the pieces to really make it something. But it was really, it, it got really exciting very quickly. I remember sharing- It's simplified. It just gets really simple Well, you're looking through location. a keyhole through there. And, I mean, and this location, I just- uh, We knew at this point, the language of the movie was gonna tend very much on these viewfinders. So we approached, we knew at this point that once the action started, we were going to be leaning heavily on the viewfinders and soft focusing everything off to the side, which, 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 we never go in the actual location for anything that's well, that, about that, to but, but that, that was an idea that, that was there before, yeah. but I remember standing outside there that night and all of a sudden it became clear that that was not only a notion or a theory, but it was actually essential yeah. and could be completely delivered Given by how, this location. How and it couldn't be any better. Couldn't yeah. be any better. It was just yeah. the location was was Kevin was actually enforcing the vocabulary that was the most inspired yeah. in the script. It was really uh, no, tremendously really exciting. On that one. Yeah, and, and and Curtis Collins, our location manager, really. I can't believe it. maybe people have shot there before, but it's just no, for no, our purposes, it was Express. perfect. And and uh, and again, hey, graffiti you, on the window—that's there. You know, we though should we change? You the can graffiti? really eat there if you want. That's uh, oh, it's definitely no, there. We were, so, but you should also, Danny. I, you know, I, it, it's more interesting from your point of view, I think, than for me sort of saying it about when you came into this whole section of the movie, this and the chase and everything right. else. How complicated and ornate your original plan was, and how and how. Yeah. Partially because of the exigencies of the budget, right. but then also because of the beauty of the simplicity. How you sort of combination of beaten down and inspired into and, yeah, and the embracing the simplicity of what you ended up with. Yeah, the original. I mean, in the script, there's 16 people in the restaurant in the script, 
and the shootout is, is, is a much larger, beefier set piece. And then what follows in the cars was, was a car chase that went on probably for twice as long than ultimately we went in the film. Yeah. And many more cars. And there was and... tanker trucks, and there was all sorts of things going on. And, and things started, Tony, Tony was, was the instigator sitting down at a very early stage and starting to plan this stuff out. And so we would sit, Tony and Robert and I would sit down and just start to try to choreograph this with, and then the, the crew, to Johnny was involved and Mike Smith and the stunt coordinators were involved. And we with started, toy cars on the table. Yeah, and we started to understand that that less was going to be more, and that that you could compress compress events and 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 make them more crystalline and diamond hard, and 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 go for uh, go for something that 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 had more energy per ounce than perhaps its, its length. I would say that what, what you ended up with was probably far more athletic than you even ever imagined that it would be. I mean, like for what you for what you because this is not a long sequence, but it really because what what you what what Mike did and. It's for its for its time. It was very. It's very. It's a very. It's a very. Uh, impactful. Well, the limitations force you into it. You don't have time to do this. You do right. not have time to. We can't put sixteen people in. We can't do the car chase this long. We're only going to get four blocks. We yeah. have to. We can't have these other things. So within the limitations, and all of a sudden it starts to get beautiful. And as it starts to get beautiful and simple, it it also. I mean, these these chases and these action sequences and and the tension of this is all driven by the fact that you really give a shit about the people that are in there. You really know them, and you really know where you are. You're geographically completely oriented that's from a, this that's moment key. That is key. all the way to the end of the movie. And and so you're, you're, you, you know, the audience doesn't have to expend any, other, any of their energy uh, to try to orient themselves. All of their energy doesn't go into saying, oh, I'm stupid, I don't know where I am, or maybe right. that's that guy. All of their energy goes into being with the characters, which is right exactly where you want them yeah, to the be. Yeah, the geography is extraordinarily clear with a location like that, which is great. And now the viewfinders come out, and now you start to uh, now we start to, to find the visual language of this sequence: soft focus and viewfinder. Do you want to talk about the competing views that we got from the police? That how interesting that was. That there were different yeah. attitudes about how to actually do this among yeah, the experts. Yeah, our first our first technical advisor felt that uh, that the first unit would wait for a second unit and they would go in all in a line with shotguns raised and aimed and ready. And we actually started to explore that. And our second technical advisor said that when he was a policeman, he would have uh, he would have gone in with his partner and gone up to the counter and pretended to order to try to vet it and check it out because so many calls actually have no validity whatsoever. And that worked very well for us because it allowed the suspense to start to build. So we went with the second technical advisor's uh, But it was interesting scenario. that they, there, there was no, there's no absolute formula no. in the LAPD. There's no, no. strict well, version the second for one how was, to do was this. an older guy, right? He's like more of a... No, but uh, the second guy was like, hey, man, we'd go in alone because actually if it was something, we'd want to we'd be the ones who were in point on it and we wouldn't want to share it with somebody because that's how, you know, you make detective by, by cases like this. So it sort of worked to our advantage. And then, you know, there's this moment here where the guy pulls out the gun and slides under the table. We, you know, because we're using viewfinders, we actually went into a soundstage and Robert and the team, we actually measured out the distances and got set everything up and recreated to make sure that you actually could see a gun. Uh, Those are the only few frames the of the gun. <laughs> yeah. Those are the only few frames we had. Yeah. And it's crucial. It's just such a luxury to never go into this environment. I, I just love this sequence so much uh, for that. For never going in. For never going inside. No, and, and it, it's the cheap thing and the best thing. Yeah, <laughs> it really is.
Oh God. So we had uh, some really strong stunt people working that night. Joe Pancake, our, our special effects guy. I mean, it's just you know, it's just really knocked it out of the park. I, what I particularly like is the is the shot to the shoulder. I thought it was very like boom. I thought it was very realistic the way they did that. He turns him around. Yeah. yeah. And what I think a, a unique element to what's about to follow is the fact that. The chase, the, the chase involves a police car pursuing a villain, but the hero car is equipped with scanners that can hear the police shatter. And I feel that the sonic element of hearing the police shatter during the chase is as an I heightened reality to it. Yeah, we developed that. That was, that became, it became, we, we realized we could do that. Yeah. And I think you realized early on that you could do it. You actually have some of that in the script, but, yeah. we, but we ended up doing a whole radio play based on. We brought in dispatchers. And we brought in policemen, and we actually had them uh, give us the. This is technically accurate. Oh, very yeah, all the way through the movie. All the oh, there's a lot. There's so much radio work in the movie that was all done. Uh, so now we're into the chase, and uh, Tony and I, and just the many people for weeks, if not months, plotting out the, what this was going to look like, and compressing it, and compressing it, and making making sure we understood what it was. This is the result of closing down Laurel Boulevard for ten blocks, like three or four nights in a row and having Mike Smith and a really amazing team of drivers come through and surgically give us these pieces that... Uh... Yeah, what we did was we, you know, you, you shot the, the, the macro action and that was put together. And then once you saw that, then we started going through and, and, uh, and finding the like, little beats for, for what, they, what the boys would say inside the car. And then you kind of shot that. We so we're staying inside. Yeah, the but let's be lot. really clear about one other thing, though. This is not a harem scarem thing of a lot of different shots that no. are put together. Oh, God, no. This is a story that if you gave, you know, 15 people that were integrally involved in this chase and put them in a room with toy cars, they could show you exactly what happened, and yeah. they would all show you the same oh, yeah. thing. Hell yeah. There was a story yeah. that was a physical story that everybody understood, understood. and came to replicate every night, not yeah. let's just, like, get seven cameras and we'll shoot a bunch of oh, stuff, no, and the God, yellow no. piece of plastic will crash into this, and it wasn't... That's how you can do it. Get. That's how you can do it on the money. And yeah. all everything, everything every, all the big moments actually usually happen through the windshield. So like when when the police car got hit before in the intersection, we shot that through the windshield from the point of view of the from, of Jake and, uh, and and Riz's character. And I believe when the car goes on its side and starts to spark, it's the same thing. We don't pull outside the car and go 100 yards in and go really wide angle. And so there, now you're looking at it through the windshield from their point of view. Boom. So you see the biggest crash that we have initially through the windshield of the car from their point of view. Jake is driving right here. This is Jake driving. He's an excellent driver. It's, it's not easy to do what he just did. There's multiple pedals that they've welded into that car that have no reference for anything that you that most people do is from a driving standpoint. I love the uh, burning cone. The burning cone. The uh, the, the torch. What is that? It's a Greek restaurant, and it's a torch. You have to pay for them to leave it on, right? We didn't even know it was there. They got lucky. The I love that. You did the, not know. You didn't know it was the there. The night the car stopped was four in the morning. And the car stopped there. And this, these shots, when we came back the next night, it was like 9 o'clock at night, right. the restaurant was still open, and Robert and I were looking, and she said, oh, my God, this, this torch is, like, right where we stopped. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, and I love it. Well, won't be seeing Riz no more. Use your Zoom.
He's really hunched like Quasimodo, isn't he? He's yeah. really like... He is. Oh, God. Well... was a controversial little little beat here this this the, the 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 perp coming out with a gun and and looking at him there was some debate about about I think this, this is look. professional courtesy I always yeah. struck me as like one animal exactly. looks at another and goes you're not worth it So here the music takes a uh, very interesting turn. It's uh, it's not it's not going to underline anything dark that's just happened. It becomes this this angelic sound that's going on in Lou's head. We found this. This was uh, uh, the architecture of this, not the cue itself that you're hearing, but the architecture of this. Nick, Nick Radner uh, found and brought us into his room and and played this for us. And this cue that starts here that will continue all the way through to the newsroom. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of angelic. It's almost over the top, right? And it's and it and then it, it it and it's it's almost we we talked about it. It's almost like uh, like Lou, like hears it and grabs it and brings it with him while he while he sort of seduces. Uh, yeah, Nina. <laughs> it accomplishes several things. One, it, uh, it it allows the audience to feel the sorrow and pain of the moment rather than sort of projecting the fact that 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 something has been perpetrated that that's a crime. And it also, I think, puts you, like, like like we talked about, in Lou's head. It also, I'll tell you something else it does. It always bothered me the length of time until I saw the score on there. It always bugged me the length of time. I was continually hammering you, going, like, the cops don't come, and nothing happens, and no one bothers him. And when you, that music acted as such a womb. It suspends and it, time. And it, it, it really made it into, it, it gave it a little mythic pixie dust. Exactly. That it needed yeah. to have permission yeah. to allow that, that to be extended. And it stopped bothering me at that point. Right. James, of course, took that idea and then made what you're hearing now, which yeah, is fantastic. I love this. Uh, yeah. And we're using this in every trailer, every piece yeah. of material that we're doing. This turnaround is so mad. Hello, ben. Hello, and this look back is so, is so... Yes, that's right. Video news. So disturbing. Got something good for us tonight? I think so. I'm about to show Nina. Yeah. Right I can tell by your tie, it's Friday. <laughs> There's Ted Bundy. Yep. <laughs> Need a ride? So this scene, this scene, like many of the scenes, Robert and I had shot listed, and I think we probably had three or four shots. And we came, and the first shot we took was this over-the-shoulder shot, and it's a one-er. And after we shot it, I think Robert and I and Jake and Renee all, everybody looked at each other and we thought, I don't think we're going to find a shot that, that's going to compliment it or want to cut away. And we just decided to go with this one shot. It was a snap I, I had some, I had my fingers crossed. When I first yeah, saw this, I was Johnny like... Johnny hates that story. No, no, I was like, I was nervous. But then it's really funny. When we when we, we sort of mocked in this this image and then parked it right there, realized that he's watching the whole thing. It's it's yeah. fantastic. It's like, and then and, and they give a great performance. It's a long scene, so you always wonder about, like, you it's know. It's a very, yeah, it's still nervy. It's very nervy. There's no escape. How many takes on this? One. Oh, how many takes? I think maybe three. Yeah, I think three. 
And did they get off at the same time? I mean, is, is Renee an early take and... You know, that's always a complicated question. Well, for... we don't cut away. It's, no, but I mean, in general, when you were doing coverage between the two of them, were you balancing that all the time? Yeah, there was, there was, it was Democratic. They were, both, was pre- they were any... both pretty on for right. this scene. They were both, like, on, they were both fired up. Um... Neither one of them ever demanded, like, I need to shoot out first. It was always going back. You could always forth. choose yeah. what you needed to. Absolutely. Yeah. You tell me. He's just watching them. You know, there's all these all these little logos and stuff going on here. Also, we should probably mention Brian Ross. We, there's so much music that's not really music, but this incidental, like, there's so much, and it's, yeah. and it's part of the sound design, so it was really... Uh, a lot of stores. Oh, my God. Cues and cues and cues. It's news footage bought and paid for from an independent contractor. And how do you think he got it? If there's an issue, speak to him. Don't get in the way of us. Unless you have a judge's order, we're going within four minutes. Hey, isn't that him? And that shot came when we realized through research that they have a camera overlooking the uh, the newsroom, and, and Kevin Cavanaugh put it in production design, and so you start walking through, and you suddenly realize, oh, there's an angle that we can use. That came from actually just walking through the location that we built. Granada Hills house. Cocaine and wrapped packages hidden in crawl spaces over 50 pounds, and he confirmed it with an investigator at the scene. It wasn't a home invasion. It was a drug robbery. And you have this, you know, enchanted music in the background. Yeah. yeah. Just enchantment. Yeah. A world of... It's, it's, it's ethereal. I'm creeping into the suburbs. That's the story. Jesus, you sound like Lou. Ten seconds to back. I think Lou is inspiring all of us to reach a little higher. Five, four, three, two, one. Sting it. Mike's. There they are. You understand that. I love how you didn't. Can I just want to say? I yeah. love how you didn't go with the. I love. I love the design in this room. That it's not trying to be the uh, the truly funky Port Authority messed up. Yeah. Graffiti. No, it's got a sort of. No, I, this feels at... right to me. This feels like. It, it's a fresh, it's a fresh, it's a fresh neutral. Jake was very challenging to her in the scene. Jake very much approached it like, I'm Lou, I've got all the cards, go ahead, do your best and try to break me. So there was, there was definitely tension while they were doing this scene because he was very, very in character while we were shooting this and, and, and challenged and really never left the mood that he's in right now. Like, go ahead, try to get it out of me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you'll, you're not gonna get one inch out of me. And uh, I'm, I'm vaguely irked that you're gonna even think you can. But she she rose. I mean, she literally rises up, and her her ire, her anger, at the end, I think, is really effective and felt. Twelve thirty-eight. I looked in my rearview mirror, and I saw what looked like the same men, in the same vehicle, following us. I made an evasive maneuver. We circled back, and tailed them to the restaurant. At which point, I saw them go inside and recognized them as the same men from the home invasion. You told me you didn't see them then. That you didn't get a good look at them. And his uniform is complete now, isn't it? Yeah, and actually, talking about the uniform, Amy Westcott, we picked that jacket. Oddly enough, it's a baseball jacket. It looks fairly generic. It's actually a $700 Prada baseball jacket. And when, <laughs> God, really? And when, when she brought it in, I was concerned that it was Prada and it would cost so much. But, you know, when you look at it, it just it just looks slick and cool. You don't know that it's that it's expensive. Lou would never have spent $700 on a jacket, unless he stole it. No, but he's girded <laughs> himself up to this final point along the way. Yeah, it just way. looks great. And yeah. there's the white shirt. Now he's got the tie on because he's become this part of the clothes 
clothing arc. See, now he's got to, he's become yeah. the true professional. And it's not the final ev evolution of the clothing arc, because the final evolution of the clothing arc is when he has the blazer on at right. the very last yeah. scene. And now he's now he's really going into a management position. So Amy Amy was very crafty and 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 and, and clever about creating this arc for the character. Very unprofessional thing for me to do in my business. It would be murder. I can understand why you're looking into it, but I didn't do anything like that. Nothing that could be considered wrong. You don't fool me for a minute. I'm glad. I think everything you've said is a lie. I wish my partner was here to back up what happened. You left your dead partner. Well, the ambulance has arrived. They're trained professionals. Yeah, and you seem real broken up about that. No, um, he died doing what he loved. You filmed him dying. That's what I do. It's my job. I like to say that if you're seeing me, you're having the worst day of your life. And then he gives us a look. Now, James's score is great here. This is a celebration, and it's got a Western theme to it. It now we're back to that industrious. This is actually a, 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 similar to the music in the pawn shop. Yes, it's same thing. Same score. So it's it's the industrious, hardworking. Some things person. are. Who's now going to go off and work hard and, and succeed? So there's the watch. There's the watch. Yeah, but then you also now. coming up is uh, in the next shot. Is we the picked radio. this location at the last second. We didn't know when he crossed the street. The, when we picked this location, it wasn't like we knew the Hollywood sign was going to be there. But the Hollywood sign is there, which I like actually every time I see it. But we didn't when we picked this location 20 minutes before we shot this. It wasn't like we knew the Hollywood song was going to be there. I like the bike. The bike goes by really fast, but the fact that he, he steals a bike. He steals a bike. I... So now there's the Hollywood sign. So we're back in LA, which is cool. Not that we ever left. Congratulations. Now, oddly enough, this was the last scene we shot. The end of the movie, and it was literally the last scene we shot. We shot this scene at 5 o'clock in the morning. The sun is already starting to come up. It's the only crane shot in the movie. And the concept of the crane shot, well, I'll say it when it comes up, but here he is, he's talking to his minions. He's, he's co-opted Joe Loader's idea. That the surest way up the ladder is to listen carefully and follow my orders. And he's enough of a boss now, he doesn't need a tie anymore. No. He's the man in the corner yeah. office. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's uh, casual Fridays for him. I will never ask you Another interesting musical signpost right there, cutting, cutting the music off right Nick's, there. Nick did that, or at least the... maybe thought of it at some point. So now here comes our crane shot. And the concept when I was writing this was, I always wanted an intersection where, where, where you could see cars go off in different directions. Because in some ways I imagined that what Lou was was a virus and that he was now gonna spread and sort of infect the rest of us. And so now here come these sort of like two little blood cells and now they're going off into the capillaries and now they're gonna, it, it's, they're, it's only gonna get worse for all of us. During the shooting, when I realized after we shot this, and then I realized, oh, we could have the moon, and then we could bring back the, uh, for the credit sequence, bring back the uh, antennas of, uh, of Mount Wilson. And, and, and we don't have to stay our migrating all this, but. Our I, migrating I, moon and. The migrating moon, yeah, the moon comes up. And uh, I don't know, if, if you haven't gotten enough out of our commentary by now, I think then we failed. I just want to say a very Anybody quick... Anybody who's listened all the way through. God help you. God, God help you. I'm saying a quick thank you to my assistant, Kevin Hickman, who did a fantastic job, and Samara Kelly. Yeah, I thank everybody whose names appear here because uh, without them, nothing would have happened. And uh, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to sit and listen to us. If you made it all the way through, congratulations. And uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the movie, and I hope you enjoyed the commentary.
and uh, take care. Thank you. 